My name is Kirkpatrick Sale. I am the treasurer of this organization. And so every now and again, they give me something pleasant to do, such as being the host of this occasion this afternoon. And it is indeed a pleasure because today marks the first International Writers for Peace Day. By the time this day is over, the bulk of the 86 Penn Centers around the world will have celebrated peace in one way or another, mostly with readings, some with meditations, some with marches. But this is the first time that the voices of the international literary community are raised in harmony, in unison, around the world to speak to those who have the power of war to demand peace. And that makes it a rather special occasion. Some may argue that uh, it's about time. Uh, indeed, uh, other professions have, before this, organized themselves to uh, announce to the world, but uh, very few on an international level. And what makes the Pan American Center special as a writer's organization is that it is part of an international organization and feels tied to the other branches and centers around the world. And its work is primarily to advance the cause of literature and freedom of expression, not merely here in America, but around the world. The organization began out of a previous war, out of the ashes of World War I. The organization was begun in England in 1921, and such as George Bernard Shaw and Thomas Hardy and Galsworthy and others joined to establish an organization that would unite writers around the world, and especially in time of war, assure that the writer's voice was heard. With your forbearance, I would like to read briefly the Penn Charter on which the organization was founded in 1921, on which all subsequent centers around the world are established. International Penn affirms that, one, literature National though it be in origin, knows no frontiers and should remain common currency between nations in spite of political or international upheavals, i.e. war. Two, in all circumstances and particularly in time of war, works of art and libraries, the patrimony of humanity at large, should be left untouched by national or political passion. Three, members of the pen should at all times use what influence they have in favor of good understanding and mutual respect between nations. They pledged themselves to do their utmost to dispel race, class, and national hatreds, and to champion the ideal of one humanity living in peace in one world, which is what, indeed, we are doing on this first International Writers for Peace Day. Penn stands for the principle of unhampered transmission of thought within each nation and between all nations, and members pledge themselves to oppose any form of suppression of freedom of expression in the country and community to which they belong.
It is on that that for these last 60-odd years, this international writers' community has been based. Although it was just last year that a Writers for Peace committee was established at the international level. It was introduced to the Tokyo Congress last year, and it was pledged then that subsequently, every year, there shall be an event like this, not on a day of a battle or a bombing, but on a day of peace. And the Japanese, who were the hosts, naturally, of the Tokyo Congress, selected this day because in Japan on this day is a special festival of dolls and, as they put it, maidens. It is a, a day in which uh, is intended for the consideration of young women and for young women to meditate upon their future. And it has traditionally been a time of harmony and of peace. And so the Japanese selected this day, and they created this poster, the uh, poster officially known as the Dove Flying Toward the Sunrise. And to the Japanese, this is a symbol of peace. And they have sent this poster around the world. And each of the Penn Centers, which today is having a reading or other demonstration of peace, is using this poster at this time. This afternoon, indeed, there will be uh, the other Penn Center in this country, in Los Angeles, will be holding a reading. After this one, if you want to, I'm sure you can race out to the airport and make it in time. It will be going on throughout the afternoon in, in Los Angeles, and the Penn President Malcolm Boyd uh, of the uh, Los Angeles Center will be the host uh, of that event. Uh, and uh, if you wish to continue on your journey, uh, if I have the international time right, I, I, I may be misleading you, but the Japanese are, or, and, or, or did, I don't know. Uh, but, but I think the Japanese will, uh, if, if you go on from, from Los Angeles, uh, there will be uh, Kanzabure Oe and Yashushi Inui, who is the president of Japanese Pen, who will be talking, uh, and there will be uh, films, they will be showing All Quiet on the Western Front in Japan, in Tokyo, uh, as you continue your journey. Uh, you may go on, if you wish, and stop at several other of the Asian centers. Uh, I su should suggest, though, you might stop in Israel, where the international Penn secretary, Alexander Bloch, uh, a, a most distinguished, witty, and, uh, and charming fellow, will be uh, the host at the uh, Israeli Peace Day readings. Uh, you can then continue up to Germany, where the East German Center and the West German Center are meeting together on this day, and the writers of German Penn Centers will be reading for peace. It is, as you can see, uh, a, a considerable effort, and we are delighted here to be part of it. I should apologize for the lack of chairs, but uh, as the treasurer, I think I am free to tell you that moving to these opulent new headquarters uh, took all of the money that we had, uh, and this is all we could afford. Uh, in an effort to provide more chairs uh, for next year's Peace Day reading, 
We have on sale wine and uh, hot cider at a dollar a piece, and this poster available for a dollar. There are only limited supplies of it, but uh, they are back there uh, where the drinks are being sold. And if you are sufficiently thirsty, uh, those of you standing in the back, you'll understand that next year you'll be able to have a seat. But it's up to you. I should also announce that uh, we do not encourage smoking in this room. If you must smoke, there's a, a hallway out there uh, and a Grecian urn, appropriately a Grecian urn, uh, which, which is to be used for ashes, uh, ashes of any kind. The readings this afternoon will be in uh, segments, and uh, you are invited to stay the afternoon or come in and out as you wish. There will be three to begin with. We'll take a, uh, a break uh, somewhere uh, after 3 o'clock, another one around 4 o'clock, and another at 5. The program for the afternoon, I'll read to you briefly will be Jerome Charon, Amy Clampett, Richard Gilman, a break, and then Maurice Kenny, Jane Cooper, Diana Chang, Alan Ginsberg. Grace Paley, Oscar Huelos, Francis Fitzgerald, a break, and then towards 5.30, Derek Parsons, Arthur Kopit, and at 5.45, Norman Mailer, whom you may know as our Penn president. That will be the rough schedule uh, of the afternoon. Our first reader is a man who is both prolific and brilliant, a combination that uh, you get rarely. He is Jerome Charon, whose latest books are Pinocchio's Nose and Appropriately enough, War Cries Over Avenue C. He is teaching at Princeton University, and this afternoon he will give us a reading from War Cries Over Avenue C. Jerry. I thought that uh, since uh, this is a day of, by the way, can you hear me back there? Yeah. I thought that um, appropriately enough, since this is a celebration of peace, I would read about war. And this is a novel about the war in Vietnam. And I'm going to read a small segment. Uh, you don't really have to have an introduction to the characters because they'll introduce themselves and it's all too crazy anyway but it occurs uh, in the early 1970s in Saigon uh, in a prison called uh, LBJ, okay? And it's from a section of the novel called Looking for Henry James. He'd gone through the first 19 years of his life without Henry James, celebrated his 20th birthday in the brig at Longbin, he was Howie Bidersbill, and he wore a stethoscope at LBJ. 
He'd been a demolitions rat, removing gook mines from buildings, toilets, and roads. But he'd fought with his sergeant on the rat patrol, got into a booby trap war with him, and the sergeant was killed while going into a toilet. Howard didn't congregate with the normal flow of prisoners. He lived with the undesirables like Neck, who'd been a turnscrew at LBJ until he strangled a soldier. The undesirables were forgotten men who feasted on wormy rice and an occasional candy bar. Howard couldn't understand why this army chaplain, Albert Peck, would come to visit. It was the chaplain who brought the candy bars. A thin man with hollowed eyes, he lectured to the undesirables, sat in a narrow room with them, surrounded by chicken wire. The chaplain wore a gun, and his boots were covered with jungle rot. He smelled like a grunt. He didn't bring them nudie calendars of Marilyn Monroe. He talked of Henry James. No one fell asleep on Chaplain Peck. He told them of a man who remained a bachelor all his life, walking, bicycling, and scribbling notes to himself. Howard needed Henry James, but the librarian was no help. LBJ hadn't discovered the Princess Casamassima. The chaplain had to smuggle in books for his pupils. Howard plagued him with questions on all the booby traps in the beast in the jungle. Where's the beast? The whole story is a tiger hunt that never happens. I don't get it, said Lubbock, who'd become a bank robber in Vietnam. That's beyond my powers. What powers? Lubbock took a razor from his shoe and tried to slash at Biter's bill, but the chaplain kicked Lubbock into the wire mesh. Howard's right. Henry James is the perfect commando. He practices evasion with purity of line. Lubbock got interested all of a sudden. He smelled that Henry had something to do with a war. The beast in the jungle was a textbook on counterinsurgency, Lubbock decided. But Howard wasn't looking for military clues. When that chaplain couldn't come for a month, he began giving classes in Henry James. The undesirables flocked to Howard and called him teach. Lubbock kept his distance. Teacher, the chaplain's a spy. He didn't come to educate us. He needs recruits. You're infantile, teacher said. The padre adores us. Do padres wear grenades in their belts? He's a spook. I'll kill you, teacher said. He wouldn't peddle his ass for the CIA and visit us with books. He's forming a special op to cancel the meanest cadre Charlie ever had. He's got nothing to do with Charles, said the teach. But he couldn't understand why the undesirables were falling away from him. The teach had an entire gallery to himself, but he missed having other murderers around. Then a new man arrived, with gold studs in his ear and a dark streak under his eye. They'd sent him a Montagnard, and it was like a monstrous joke to the teach, because this Montagnard was a practicing illiterate. He called himself King George and had delusions about his grandeur in Vietnam. Bow to me, motherfucker, he said to the teach. Teach could have bitten the studs off this Montagnard's ear, but the little man might bleed to death, and teach preferred having a companion at LBJ, even if it was a lunatic, so he bowed. Everything up to snuff, your majesty? Would you like a bit of straw in your quilt? Shut up! He tried reciting Henry James, but the Montagnard leapt on him, and teach had to apologize for breaking the silence. George shivered and moaned at night, and Teach couldn't tell if it was malaria or mountain clap. He took that little man into his arms and rocked him. It felt peculiar 
since the Montagnard was taller than Teach. Stop that moaning, Majesty. Teacher is here. George never said thank you. He allowed the teacher to rock him, and then he'd fall asleep in the teacher's arms. That's what I call friendship, teacher muttered. I'm mercy to this son of a bitch. But the king left him soon, and teach shuddered against the wire walls until the screws came, beat him on the shoulders, stripped him of his ID, and tossed him out of LBJ. He was wearing prison fatigues. He had a few piastres in his pocket, enough for bubble gum. He might have wandered for a week, but a corporal from his old company found him, and he rode with the rat patrol into Saigon. Teach got off outside the American mission. Marines at the gate mocked his prison clothes. Where'd you borrow those hand-me-downs? From Chaplain Peck. He's with the spooks upstairs. Sorry, handsome, there's no Chaplain Peck on our roster. That's because the CIA stuck him in the fridge. Teach crossed on New Boulevard and entered the, the, the milk bar contretemps where all the long noses used to take their coffee and croissant. But there weren't many long noses around. Saigon had been Nam's own little Paris during the reign of the long noses. Now the long noses themselves had gone out of style. The chaplain entered the contretemps in a blue cord suit and aviator glasses. Blue becomes your padre. Is that your preaching clothes? Not at all. I'm the tutor to dependent children and embassy wives. I teach arithmetic, Spanish, French, and classics of the Western world. Could I be in your class? You've been to school with me, Howard. I gave you the best I have. But you stole all the other pupils, Padre. Steal? I took over their contracts. The army leased them to me. What about King George? He's my ablest pupil, Howard, after yourself. Teach was suspicious. Are you ever a chaplain? Now and then. And the rest of the time, you're a spook with Saigon Station. You have a wonderful cover, Padre, doing arithmetic in dark glasses. I'm not a CIA man, Howard. I'm on loan to the company, developing a nodule for Saigon Station. Is that old nodule something from Henry James? You could call it that, said the Padre. It's a clump of ideas too far out for the regular boys. I have my own war room at the station, a closet really, but it's big enough for us. We're a different kind of commando, Howard. We conduct a war that runs counter to the war that's going on. We embrace whoever wins and loses. We don't stop at any border. If we can use the Kong, we'll fight on their side for a week, help them wax a band of Korean rangers. We go anywhere to get what we want. And what is it you want, an army that's read the Princess Casamassima? No, said the Padre. I'd like to score a win in the Nam that has nothing to do with picking up real estate. You have to absorb the whole fucking war, make the enemy part of your op, work him into the battle screen, hamburgers and all. That's what we do. We're not allowed official status. The company's scared of Kissinger and his peace negotiations. We get our soup and supplies from the contingency fund. We don't have shoulder patches or bracelets. Some of us wear a blue beanie. How come I'm not good enough to wear that beanie of yours? You haven't been indoctrinated yet. You've still got all your maiden hair. What maiden hair, said the teach. I was blown up twice on wiring booby traps. There's no maiden hairs in them wires. Send me back to the rat patrol if you're not satisfied. The padre laughed behind his aviator glasses. You haven't seen our headquarters at the Richelieu. 
You mean the crazy movie house on the Loy that never heard of Jack Nicholson? It's strictly for the long noses. They watch foreign films and pick up 10-year-old whores in back of the no-smoking sign. You're filled with Yankee prejudice, as the Padres said. Go to the Richelieu. Teach travel down to Rainbow Road, a strip of massage parlors, taco stands, and bottle clubs where Nam ceased to exist. And it was Texas with neon signs, milk bars with Kissinger in the window, supply sergeants selling Carvel ice cream, baby sons in Harvard sweatshirts, Korean rangers in 10-gallon hats, until Teach could have sworn America itself was only merchandise. And he was glad to arrive at the Richelieu on Leloy. He paid his last bits of orange money to get inside and couldn't even afford the price of a candy bar. Little girls kept grabbing his ankles from the aisles. Slugger, want a heavy date? He cursed the Padre for sending him here, and then a hand reached around him stronger than thicker than a child's and shoved him into his seat. Hey, he said, I'll booby trap the first ten rows. Leave me alone. He recognized the glint of gold in the dark. It was George's air furniture. He'd been shoved next to the king. Old George wasn't in prison rags this afternoon. Under the projector's ratty light, Teach saw a blue beret on the king's head. You come here often, majesty? Day and night. I get language practice. Ah, the teacher said, you're learning French. The king was silent, and then he said, I studied with the nuns in Delat. My tribe was always loyal to the French. It's American English I'm worried about. But these films are French. I read the subtitles, his majesty said. The little mother was beginning to make sense. Thank you very much. You will notice as the afternoon progresses that the reading choices, which are entirely up to those who will be reading, are quite idiosyncratic, as befits uh, the kinds of uh, writers uh, who have reached the eminence to be part of uh, a group like the Penn Center. Some will be reading from their own work, some from others that they admire, some from works about peace, some from works about war, and some from, from works uh, whose connection to peace will have to be worked out uh, in your own mind, in your own way. Our next reader is Amy Clampett, who will be reading from her poem, Homer 80, 1982, and an additional poem. Uh, the the, the second reading is from uh, Baron Wormser's I Try to Explain to My Children. Amy Clampett is, uh, of course, a well-known poet whose latest work was The Kingfisher. Uh, and in a month, her next book, What the Light Was Like, will be out. She teaches at the College of William and Mary and is a writer in residence there and has long been an activist with uh, some of the other people on our program this afternoon, notably Grace Paley, in the peace movement, Amy Clampett. One of the best statements I have seen uh, of the current predicament of uh, our 
Western Civilization is a poem by Baron Wormser, um, who has a first and now a second book published. Um, this appeared in Poetry Magazine, and the whole title is I Try to Explain to My Children, a newspaper article which says that according to a computer, a nuclear war is likely to occur in the next 20 years. Death, I say, used to have two faces, one good, one bad. The good death didn't like to do it, kill people, dogs, insects, flowers, but had to do it. It was his duty. He would rather have been playing cards. Without him, the earth would get too crowded, the soil would become tired, feuds would overtake love. That was what, what death believed, and when we thought about it, we agreed. The bad death was a bully. He would kill angels if he could. He settled for children, poets, all flesh increased by spirit. He bragged and made bets and said disparaging things about the human race. People made his job easy, he said. They were full of a confusion that soon became hatred. He would shake his head in wonder, but he understood. The nations of the world offered him their love. The new death doesn't have a face. He will kill us, but in the meantime, he wants to kill life, too. He is calm, devoted, gradual. He is crazy. The other two deaths do not like him, the way he wears a tie as if death were in office, the way he wants to be efficient. Fate and fortune bore him. He has reasons. There cannot be enough death, he says. You will put us out of business, the other two say, but he doesn't listen. Things seem the same, my children, but they aren't. One of the great uh, anti-war documents, uh, I, I believe, is um, Homer's Iliad. A couple of years ago, three years ago in fact, I spent probably the happiest times I ever had in a classroom going to a course trying to read the Iliad in Greek. It was taught by a wonderful man named Irving Kithner, and um, this little sonnet came out of that class. It's dedicated to him and, and the, the people in it. Homer A.D. 1882. I should perhaps say that there's a reference, the references to several passages we read, one of which is one of the most famous in the entire Iliad, and it's about the time when Hector was about to go off to what he felt would, would be his death. He came to say goodbye to Andromache, his wife, and his, his little son, Astyanax. Uh, when he reached out to take up the child to say goodbye to him, the little boy didn't recognize him. He was wearing um, the, the helmet, the war helmet that the Greeks fancied with a great horsehair plume on it, and the baby screamed and pulled away from him. Very human incident that, that brings um, a, an ancient poem into the present, I think. Homer, A.D. 1982. Much having traveled in the funkier realms of academe, aboard a grungy elevator car, Deus ex maxima machina reversed to this ninth floor classroom, its windows grimy, where the noise of traffic, polyfluis boyothalases like, is chronic. We've seen since February the stupendous candor of the Iliad pour in, and for an hour and a quarter at the core, the great pulse was dactylic. We've seen the clash from those great halls of light and dark, the sullen campfires of a brooded-over collar. Odysseus, rising, sway his peers with storms of logic. 
the spurned priest of Apollo shrink along the shore, and Hector's baby, shadowed by the plumes of war as we are, pull back from his own father with a shriek. I'm going to read a couple of other short poems of mine. One is so new that it has not uh, been, uh, not had a chance to appear in print. It's called Atlas Immobilized, and it has to do with uh, the myth of, uh, of Perseus who uh, decapitated Medusa, who, who, to look at whom would turn one to stone, and having done so, he carried this decapitated head around with him and kept turning things to stone here and there. Among them was uh, Atlas the giant, who then became Mount Atlas. <coughs> Atlas immobilized. Hulk, grown monumental, monumental with refusal. Intolerable landlock lock under the stars he cannot shift, cannot rescind, cannot look up into the cave of delirium, myopic rock face, the towering quagmires of infinity shrunk to a hair shirt. What ultimatum binds this certitude upon his back that once set in place, nothing can alter? Is even the moon seeming to loiter a half-hearted voyeur mere robotry? The wedding party garroted inside the skull, the psyche's well-heeled wall-to-wall captivity, conversation pit a desert. Airborne murder overhead in squadron follicles, mad seed of the purely theoretical, orbiting as talks continue. With the usual hand-wringing, thrones, dominations, powers, adhering to the same unshakable position, nothing truly is except what overcomes. No rapprochement. The moon looks in, moves off again, Orion's mitered studs once more abrade the, the hemisphere. Are all these rigors fixed, the single step untakeable, the postures of the conversation pit unfree to bend, to make amends? Were all that's now locked up in fright to shriek, might not some warden even yet unforge the key? And finally, I have a little poem called The Great Bonfire, which is a pattern after a, a poem of, of Pablo Neruda called The Great Tablecloth. It has the same form, not exactly the same message. The Great Bonfire. It was fine to see the merchandise, the high-colored effigies of well-being, to admire the strobe-lit disco beat of the dancing masters after a lifetime of come-ons and brush-offs, all those injections of Novocaine and bad sex. But the mutterer within must go back home to itself, where it lives curled up like a fist inside the dead hand of anger. No one can say where its ancestors are buried or who holds the incriminating documents, even though we know nations are made of anger. Remanded by that mortmain, it is the bread of armies. In the jail hour of dreams, the mutterer comes home to himself, fabricating municipalities of revenge complete with executioners, dancing girls, and the lost gardens of childhood, seeing whole cities shrivel into worthless scraps of paper. Too much of us has been mortgaged for too long to that dead hand. We have lived down there in the mines like pit ponies, while above ground, the diamond merchants go on hawking versions of reality so expensive we forget to entertain miracles. Daylight. Rain, the risen purple of crocuses. Irascible splendors climb the air. Fed in that shade by coruscations of envy, the mutterer can no longer mourn. It feels nothing. 
When will we begin to give that mortmain its long overdue last rites? When, having set down every betrayal, every wound and bottled up disappointment, will we feed the mountainous undelivered letters of revenge like a paid up mortgage into one great bonfire? Let us sit down soon to that jubilee, the grand last conflagration of anger. Together, we shall watch the spectacle as it blazes and dies down again. By then it will be evening. Not much time will be left, perhaps, but we can still observe the stars, we can listen to the breathing of the ocean, and begin to ask the right questions. I believe on this day we must allow the honkers and the police to celebrate with us in their own fashion, uh, however distracting that may sometimes be to us. A dear man and a dear friend, Richard Gilman was a former president of the Penn American Center, and a distinguished one indeed. Taking time away from all of his attempts to get anything written. But he did, <clears throat> before this uh, onerous job descended upon him, write two works of high literary distinction, The Making of the Modern Drama, and decadence. At present, he is finishing what he calls a memoir of a religious kind. Uh, I'll leave you to twist his arm into an explanation of what that may mean. Uh, he is teaching at Yale, as he has for many years, and at uh, Boston University. He will be taking us back uh, to 1937 to the Basque country, which gives me an opportunity to add that there is a Penn, a Penn Center in Basque country. The reason that there are more centers around the world than there are nations is that uh, each literature, each language, is entitled to have a Penn Center. And uh, so in the Basque country, uh, they feel themselves a distinct culture apart from the Spanish culture, and they have there a uh, fairly active Penn Center. And I trust that on this day it is joining the International Writing Writers for Peace in this effort. Uh, Dick will be reading a description of the bombing of Guernica from the book on the Spanish Civil War, The Passionate War, by Peter Wyden. Uh, a couple of prefatory <coughs> remarks. The bombing of Guernica was the event <coughs> that, for me, in my adolescence, uh, first imprinted war on my consciousness. Before that, I'd played with toy soldiers and had seen photos of World War One. I. I think for the, those, many of you, certainly older ones among you, that event might have had the same uh, effect on you. Uh, another a prefatory note, Guernica is a town near Bilbao, 
near the coast, the Bay of Fundy. Uh, the population at the time of the bombing was between five and 6,000. The exact uh, number of dead will never be known. The minimum is 1,000, and estimates go up to about 16 to 1,700. Small potatoes by current standards, by what happened later, but uh, how do we measure such things? Uh, one more note. Guernica was the ancient seat of Basque government. There, under a great oak tree known as the Sacred Oak of Guernica, Basque kings and leaders and government officials later met to enact legislation and to discuss business of the state. The tree survived the bombing. The Condor Legion, I must, uh, I realize, add this. The Condor Legion was a uh, a squadron of German flyers working, flying for the Franco forces, the nationalist forces. Uh, the ostensible purpose of the raid, the purpose that was given out later, was the destruction of a bridge, a certain bridge. Guernica was an undefended town. Waiting for instructions Monday morning, von Moro basked in the sunshine, the warm breeze, and the exclusive status of his VB-88 squadron on the Burgos airfield. His four 200 miles per hour Heinkel 111 bombers, only lately arrived in Spain and still considered experimental, were sleeker and faster than the Junkers. They had metal frames and were more maneuverable. They were parked separately and von Moro's 32 men fraternized little with the Junkers crews. They drank in their own bars, played cards in their own office, and marked their sandstone and gray planes distinctively with a condor vulture clawing a bomb. About noon, von Richthofen, that's the cousin of the Manfred that we know, marched into the operations room, the closed-off lounge of the Fronton Hotel in Vitoria, the Condor Legion's forward base. All in bulletin board was his memo asking squadron leaders to remind pilots of the golden rule, if a target could not be attacked for any reason, bombs loads should be dropped anyway on enemy ground without regard for the civilian population. Von Richthofen went to the plotting table and announced, the attack is on. The date, by the way, is April 26th, 1937. His staff peered at aerial photos showing troops moving along the three escape roads toward the Renteria Bridge. Anything that moves on those roads or that bridge can be assumed to be unfriendly and should be attacked, von Richthofen said. With his usual precision, he outlined a staggering concert. Von Moro's overture would be a solo. He would bomb alone, mostly to probe for anti-aircraft defenses, and then rendezvous with the other planes of his squadron and dispatch them for the first major bombing run. His HE-111s would be shielded by six of the soon-to-be-famous Messerschmitt BF-109 fighters flying 2,000 feet above them, and later swooping down to assist with the strafing. 23 Junkers would hit next from 6,000 feet in three waves. The finale would be staged by 10 HE-51s bombing and machine gunning in low-level attacks. The 43 aircraft would carry 100,000 pounds of bombs, about one-third of them ECB-1 incendiaries, never before used against an urban target. Von Richthofen said they were, quote, ideal for creating panic among a retreating enemy. To button up his onslaught, he ordered an additional six HE-51s to stage a diversionary attack on the road south of Gannica, prior to the main show. On the roof of the Carmelite convent northwest of town, converted into a hospital for almost 500 battle casualties, two nuns acting as lookouts 
rang a handbell and shouted, Avion, Avion. Before the Mother Superior could telephone the warning into Granica, the bells of Santa Maria Church started pealing. Downtown, the market crowds quickly realized it was a market day, by the way, a Monday, so the town was more crowded than usual. Quickly realized it was an air raid warning, but only a handful took shelter in the refugios. They offered little protection anyway, mostly a few sandbags covering boards laid over some of the patios. Von Moro spotted troops on the hills west of the town. Was Guernica fortified? He went into a steep climb as his bombardier spotted the Renteria Bridge. There was no flak. Guernica was undefended. The discovery prompted Von Moro to descend to 4,000 feet for his bombing run. Bombs ready, shouted the bombardier. He called for minor course changes. Von Moro executed them in slow to 150 miles per hour. Bombs away, some 3,000 pounds of death rained down. Huddling in his mud hole, Monks, that's a British uh, reporter correspondent, heard the great grumbling noises of the bombs. He was glued to his wristwatch, ticking off the minutes of his confinement from the strafing. It was 4.35. Ten minutes after the Heinkels departed in search of fatter targets, he got up and hurried back to, to Bilbao, unaware that he had heard the first rumbling of an international incident that would reverberate for years history's most massive raid on an undefended target. Father Alberto de Onandia, a 34-year-old Basque priest and a canon of Valladolid Cathedral, spotted von Moro's Heichel from the western edge of town. He had taken leave from his social work and was driving to the endangered nearby town of Marquina to evacuate his mother. It's nothing, a peasant told him, examining the sky. Only one of the white ones. He'll drop a few bombs and then he'll go away. The locals had learned to distinguish between the twin-engine and the more malignant three-engine birds. Father Anandia drove on toward the railroad station in the center of Guernica. He feared for his mother. Von Moro, the precision artist, had failed for once. His bombs landed close to the Mundaka River, but at the railway station plaza, more than 300 yards west of the Renteria Bridge. One 550-pound bomb tore away the front of the Forsto Julian Hotel across from the station. Some 100 yards away, Juan Siliaco, a volunteer fireman hurrying to the fire station, was knocked off his feet and saw a group of women and children flying into the air, their bodies breaking apart. Arms, legs, and heads rained on him. Stumbling over the lower half of a woman, he scurried on toward the station past more than a dozen corpses. He pulled some screaming injured from rubble piles and joined a group of shrieking women clawing at the debris from the hotel. Children had been playing in front of the building. Yelling for silence, Siliaco placed an ear on the rubble. Rising, he shook his head. In the ticket office of the station, he and some other firemen dug out the clerk from under plaster and beams. The men shuddered and died. The man shuddered and died. They laid him at the end of a row of bodies outside. Bombs away, shouted the bombardier and Heinkel 25-4, approaching the Renteria Bridge at 2,000 feet. The remaining three planes of Von Moro's squadron dropped their loads in a westward line from the candy factory near the bridge to the Ariane restaurant. The bridge was untouched. In the factory, the incendiaries ignited vats full of sugar solution. Screaming girls stampeded to the door. One woman worker collapsed, her hair and coveralls on fire. The canvas roofs of the market stalls were swept by flames. Shoppers and animals dropped, injured and dead. Juan Siliaco and his fellow firemen running toward the fire station saw it tumble down in smoke, the town's only fire truck flattened. Shaken but uninjured, Father Anandia drove through screaming, praying, gesticulating crowds. Followed by chickens, pigs, and donkeys, townspeople ducked into the shelters. A growing mob ran for the town's eastern exit toward the hills, the Renteria Bridge. A man carrying a caged bird screamed for his wife to stay by his side. 
A woman with slashed feet cackled crazily. Overhead, five pairs of HE-51 zoomed in at 200 feet. Abandoning his car, Father Anandia took refuge under the sturdy bridge. The water at the river's edge was only ankle deep. Two hankles dipped over the marketplace and flew back and forth at perhaps 100 feet, raking the area with machine guns. The crewmen were clearly discernible from the ground. An incendiary bomb ricocheted off the corner of the arms factory. Four people were killed in the door of the shelter under the town hall. The mayor ordered it closed. People started choking as smoke drifted in. Plumes of smoke billowed into the brilliantly sunny sky. The bridge held. Still eager to rescue his mother, Father Anandia dashed for some woods. P planes started strafing the area as he burrowed under fallen leaves. The sinister sound of splintering wood frightened him. Fleeing women, children, and oldsters were, quote, falling in heaps like flies, and everywhere we saw lakes of blood. The major assault had not yet begun. Junker Squadron Number 1 and a First Lieutenant Carl von Nauer launched its bombing run in chains of three, flying wing to wing. The first bombs flattened the bank of Vizcaya. Fireman Siliaco nearby heard a chorus of wounded crying. A man with disabled legs crawled across the street, pleading for help. He was blown apart with some cows from a market that had broken loose from their pens. Father Eusebio Arunatugi snapped an extraordinary photo of the first waves of Junkers and turned to watch his beloved church of San Juan go up in flames. The Renteria Bridge stood untouched. 30 seconds behind Von Nauer, Baron Von Bust, leading the squ second squadron in Junkers 2270, saw the first group of bombs dropping, but found the town obscured by what appeared to be dust clouds. Even a good bomb site would not have helped. The bombardiers dropped their loads without aiming or knowing what they were hitting. Captain Erhard von Delmensingen Kraft, leading the third squadron five miles behind, thought the dust was smoke. He also saw nothing of the town, but the Renteria Bridge at its edge was clearly visible to him. As his plane lifted following the release of his bombs, he looked back. His incendiaries cascaded in a silver stream into the town. His heavy bombs damaged the orchard kitchen and chapel of the La Merced convent some 200 meters south. It stood. At 6.50 p.m., six Messerschmitts under First Lieutenant Hervig Nuckel, starting to strafe refugees and fleeing soldiers along the Mujica Road, fired steadily into the town from north to south. At 7.30 p.m., the HE-51 swooped down for the last attack of von Richthofen's plan. The bridge stood. So did the arms factory, the tree of Guernica, and the stone benches around it. Walking back into town, Father Anandia could see no further than 500 meters for all the flames and thick black smoke. Stumbling among rubble heaps and bomb craters as wide as 16 meters and 8 deep meters deep, the priests saw people emerging into the streets in stupor. Some were praying, none were crying. As they roamed in search of loved ones, the sky turned the color of blood. So did all the faces the priest saw. It was very quiet. He left on foot to look for his mother. Later in the night, he discovered her sitting exhausted by the roadside. Guernica's telephones were cut. So was the mortar main. Of the approximately 300 buildings, 271 were destroyed. Coming out of her family shelter, Ignacia Ozamis, four months pregnant, saw her home afire. Her husband hurried in and retrieved their money and papers. Oh, if only you'd managed to save my sewing machine, she said. He dashed back in. Climbing down with the machine, he found the staircase in flames. He heaved the machine out the window and jumped after it. He made it. The machine broke. Following routine debriefings at their bases in Burgos and Vitoria, the men of the Condor Legion relaxed. The brothel was busy, and in the lounge of the Hotel Fronton, the pilots were singing their favorite songs. Thank you. 
politics et uh, it, it reminds us of the power of words and the fact that we can still be moved even in this day and age by such a tragedy as that. Let us take a brief break and uh, at 3.30 uh, we'll have a segment with Maurice Kenny, Diana Chang and uh, at uh, 4 o'clock Allen Ginsberg. And uh, I invite you all to participate in the uh, wine and cider uh, and buy a poster if you wish. We will begin promptly at 3.30. Ladies and gentlemen, may I uh, ask your attention again, please? Some of those standing in the back might want to uh, come up front where you can get the sun full in your eyes uh, sitting on the floor up here, absolutely dazzled by not only the reading but uh, the lighting. I invite you to the second sec segment of our Writers for Peace Day. <clears throat> I regret to announce that Jane Cooper is ill and will not be able to be with us this afternoon. Uh, particularly unhappy circumstance because those of you who know her and know her work know how dedicated she has been to the cause of peace and has been one who has worked the themes of peace and war into much of her writing. And in fact, her, uh, there's a long poem uh, on Rosa Luxemburg, which is really about uh, the acts of achieving peace, achieving change, uh, which was read in honor of Grace Paley in the White House 11 some years ago at a benefit uh, up at NYU. Uh, and Grace will be a reader later on in this afternoon's program. Uh, Jane has always been one who stood shoulder to shoulder with such peace activists and whose work demonstrates her attachment to this cause. And I'm uh, sorry to say that she won't be with us this afternoon. To remind you of the international scope of this event, I'd like to read to you the statement that was passed at the Tokyo International Pen Congress last year, which launched this event. It was decided that once a year on the same day, all the writers of the world should demonstrate their allegiance to peace in the world by means of initiatives and actions befitting the nature of a writer's work. With such a demonstration for peace, they should draw the world's attention and awaken its conscience. Thus, in addition to their own private involvement in peace movements, writers should, in unison once a year, warn humanity of war, violence, armament, and all kinds of slaughter. So through their own organization, the International Pen, they would make their contribution to efforts aimed at securing peace in the world. And God knows it's a hard enough task. None of us quite knows how to go about it. But this is a way in which we felt we could at least begin to add our voices to those others that have been raised 
so that the chorus would be loud enough so that it may be heard even at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and the corresponding Kremlin address. We begin this section with a reading from the poet Maurice Kennedy, whose uh, most recent book is the Mama Poems, which won the uh, American Book Award. And next month, a book of his is Summer This Bear will be available. Maurice Kenny. There are many kinds of war, but only one piece. And the poems I'd like to read this afternoon deal with those various kinds of war. Sometimes <clears throat> injustice. The day I was born, my father bought me a 22. A year later, my mother traded it for a violin. Ten years later, my big sister traded that for a guitar and gave it to her boyfriend who sold it. Now you know why I never learned to hunt or learned how to play a musical instrument or became a Wall Street broker. <laughs> I do a lot of traveling across this land, usually by the Greyhound bus. And I went out west to some reservations in South Dakota two years ago. And this particular poem uh, came about from that trip. It's called Greyhounding to Billings, Montana. Hey, you Indian? I nodded. Hey, you, you Indian? His cowboy hat fell onto the beer can in his lap as he turned to his seat companion reading a Superman comic. I rode from Chicago to Minneapolis with these two dudes. I thought they were greasers. He topped his balding head again with a hat and sipped beer. They were real live Apaches. I stood waiting to get into the bus bathroom. Hey, I asked if you was Indian. Mohawk. From back east, he sipped his beer. Man, it's good sitting next to a normal person, he remarked to his companion and slouched in the seat. And I agreed closing the bathroom door and turned on the bright light. <laughs> I'm from northern New York up on the St. Lawrence River from Akwesasne, but I currently live in Brooklyn, and I ride the subways here in New York as we all do. Young male, you sat quietly across the subway aisle raucous thunder howling in your throat, thunder which would gag the breeze in mine. Your tight fists are caked with sludge of cement, hands which would slaughter six million buffalo on the range if there were six million buffalo. Instead, you build nuclear reactors. Your hair is soft 
and loose, sports a blonde sheen. Hazel eyes send out suspicious messages. Afraid I'll scalp those flowing locks, tearing the bloody membrane from your head. You squat on the subway seat like a mountain man of the old as yet unconquered West. A green river blade ready to skin beaver or any cuss you don't much like the crook of his jaw. Your thighs bulge. Your heavy arms are thick with the electrical power of whips. I wonder if there is a smile in your soul. Can you bend to sniff a violet? I doubt you'd scent anything but a double whiskey, a hooker on the curb, your hunting boots, your own rawness. Your face is not ugly, nor does it appear particularly mean. Even those hazel eyes don't seem too cruel. But when I look at those hands knotted in a crisp clench, I know you would crush me on the whim, for you are America, not the land, rivers, mountains, desert, or sky, not hawk or wolf. You are the superhighways, skyscrapers, acid streams clogged with dead rainbows. You are Gary, Indiana, downtown LA, Burger King, adult bookstores, Ronald Reagan, New Jersey that stole the giants and now teased the American exchange. Your prows rumble as the subway slides to the harbor tunnel to Bowling Green Station. When the doors open, you stand. I'm amazed to see how short you are. Shorter than me by an inch or two, but bulky and rump and flank. We ascend the escalator. You tramp off towards Broad Street. I amble to the post office in the old Connard building to send letters home. I know you are here to stay that you are scouting Buffalo. The uh, next poem I'd like to read might take a slight introduction. It deals with the massacre of peaceful Lakota Sioux people at Wounded Knee in 1890, and I wrote it back in 1973 at the time of the confrontation at Wounded Knee then. In it, I use a few expressions which perhaps I should explain. I use the word mother, and of course I mean the earth. I use the word father, and I mean the almighty, the creator. And I use the word brother, I'm really talking of brothers and sisters, we two-leggeds, the four-leggeds, the wingeds, and those of the water. And I use a Lakota expression, chongpei opai wakpala. It means wounded knee. Back in the late 1800s, a Paiute holy man by the name of Wovoka had a vision. And in his vision, he was told that if the people danced hard enough and long enough, they would dance the buffalo back to the plains. And in that dance, they would fall out in a frenzy and have a vision 
and be reunited with their ancestors and see new growth on the earth. I take a quote from the holy man, Black Elk. I did not know then how much was ended. When I look back from this high hill of old age, I can see the butchered women and children lying heaped and scattered along the crooked gulch as plain as when I saw them with eyes still young. A people's dream died there. It was a beautiful dream. The nation's hoop is broken and scattered. Black elk. I am the sun, a song of praise, defiance, and determination for all of us. Father, I come. Mother, I come. Brother, I come. Father, give us the arrows. Chung Beo Pai Wak Bala. Father, I hold one for Bigfoot. Mother, I hold one for black coyote. Brother, I hold one for yellow bird. Father, give us back our arrows. Chung peo pai wak pala. Father, give us sky. Father, give us sun in the east. Father, give us night in the west. Father, watch our shadows. Father, give us back our arrows. Chung peo pai wak Mother, your breast is bare. Mother, your breast was not enough to sustain us. Mother, hold our bones now. Mother, we search for our arrows. Chung peo pai wak pala. Brother, we cried for you. Brother, we called you back. Brother, we descended with you and your flesh and your bones and your fur which kept us warm. Brother, when our arrows are returned, we will seek you. Chong Beo Pai Wak Bala. Arrows, now the skies are diseased. Arrows, now the earth is diseased. Arrows, now the people are sick on dreams. Arrows, come back to us. Chong Beo Pai Wak Bala. Our father is gone. Our father has fled. Our father has turned his face. Arrows, give us back our father. Our mother has closed her eyes. Our mother has closed her mouth. Our mother has closed her heart. Arrows, give us back our mother. Our brother has wandered away. Our brother does not walk. Our brother has gone down. Arrows, give us back our brother. The arrows broke with greasy grass. The arrows broke with crazy horse. The arrows broke with sitting bull. Father, give us back our arrows. Chung peo pai wak pala. In the river of his blood, I stand in Bigfoot's grave. In the shout of fear, I shout for black coyote. In the dance of his dream, I dance for yellow bird. Father, give us back our arrows. We will put the center back in your country. We will circle stones and make the hoop in your country. We will plant the seed of the sacred tree in your country. We will fill the river with water. We will fill the woods with trees. We will clothe the bones with flesh. 
We will empty the graves. We will call back the wolf, the deer. We will build the walls of the dream. We will make and tend the fires in your country. For I am the sun. I am the sun. I stand above the world. Chung Peo Pai Wak Bala. Chung Peo Pai Wak Bala. Father, give us back our arrows and make a woman into a child, a boy into a man, a girl into a woman, an arrow into a country, a country into a home, a home into the sun. Chung peo pai wak bala. Chung peo pai wak bala. Chung peo pai wak bala. Father, give us no more graves. Father, give us back our arrows. We have learned to hold them sacred. last poem I'll read, it's called Graveyards, not as depressing as it may sound. I was invited to uh, Buffalo and Salamanca a few years ago to read in a new library there, and I was delighted for a number of reasons. One, they were paying me a great deal of money, <laughs> and uh, that's always nice to have. And I went there to the library and I walked in with several people and on the front uh, counter of the library there was a little small sign about this size saying whispering poem will read poems tonight. So I got back to Buffalo the next day leaving Salamanca and sat down and wrote this poem. It's called Graveyards. My friend looked a little jittery. I told Dennis that yes, I could handle the situation alone. Just get in your car and slowly mosey on down the road. No need for you to get busted. There they were, stones sitting in a row. Little Belly, Young King, Tall Peter, Deerfoot, Captain Pollard, Destroy Town, Red Jacket, and General Eli S. Parker. To see their headstones under October sun in that cemetery, I remembered how Ford and Helen took me for a drive the day before through the mountains along the Kinsua Highway to the dam to find corn planters' grave. The black cat which crossed our lost country way misled us into several wild goose chases so we headed back towards Salamanca, where I was to read poems in that new library. Funny, we laughed pretty hard afterwards, Helen and Robert and Ford, because we sat in that new Sterling library waiting for an audience which hadn't been invited. One young woman, a student, I guess, came to our table in the children's section and expressed how much she loved poetry and how much she'd love to stay and hear poems 
but well, next time I came to Salamanca, not then, however, tomorrow was a school day and she had phys ed homework. <laughs> the four of us balled up in the yellow jalopy, drove off to find Jerry Rothenberg's old house in town and a Dunkin' Donuts figure in the town didn't want any hostile Mohawk reading poems to their Seneca Indians. I cashed the fat check when I got back to Buffalo real fast with big thanks. <laughs> anyway, as I said, I told Dennis to get into the car, start the motor, and leave slow. I was going to cause trouble. I'm really pretty proud of him, a white guy. He did turn the ignition on, did start the motor, but waited for my messy trouble to commence. Right in the heart of Little Belly's stomach stood an American flag in their traditional red, white, and blue, not synonymous with turtle, bear, and wolf. The flag lifted from the earth easily, and its stick broke neatly in half. Dennis had the old car revved up and the door opened. I threw down the stick and we drove off. Which reminds me, do you know the United States Post Office recently printed a 13-cent stamp to commemorate Crazy Horse, the Lakota warrior? The proclamation said, because Crazy Horse had been, and I quote, a great American? I think the government is searching out his hidden grave now to plant a small flagpole on it, too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Maurice Kenny. It is my personal belief that if we are ever to move to peace, which will be peace with our surroundings as well as our fellow human beings and species, it will come through learning the wisdom of the American Indians. And you can see why I believe that. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that bring the good tidings that publisheth peace from the Bible. That's what we are in the process of doing this afternoon. For those of you who do not have programs, let me repeat that the order of our Plans this afternoon is this segment with Diana Chang and Allen Ginsberg, and then Grace Paley, Oscar Huelos, Francis Fitzgerald, and finally Derek Parsons, Arthur Copet, and Norman Mailer. Next, it gives me pleasure to bring to you a 
Diana Chang, whose new books of poems and drawings, for she is a multi-talented person, is titled What Matisse is After, put out last fall by Contact Two Publishers. She has had six novels published in this country and abroad and uh, is currently at work on short stories and poems, and she teaches creative writing at Barnard College. Diana. going to be reading anything of my own, um, but I have a little assortment of poems by poets from different parts of the world and from different times. The poems are not, are, are really indirectly about peace, but I'll let Thomas Hardy, Jose Lacaba, Pablo Neruda, and E.E. E. Cummings have their say. And if I have time, I'll also read a Bob Dylan song. Uh, this is uh, by Thomas Hardy, and he wrote this in 1909. Uh, one word I should explain. It's list, and it's short for endlist. The man he killed. Had he and I but met by some old ancient inn, we should have sat us down to wet right many a nipperkin, arranged as infantry and staring face to face. I shot at him as he at me, and killed him in his place. I shot him dead because, because he was my foe. Just so. My foe, of course he was. That's clear enough. Although he thought he'd list, perhaps, offhand like, just as I, was out of work, had sold his traps. No other reason why. Yes, quaint and curious war is. You shoot a fellow down, you treat if met, where any bar is or help to have a crown. Uh, this is a little satirical poem on freedom by Jose F. Lacaba, translated from the Tagalog by Louis H. Francia, who is a poet on his own and a founding member of Filipino writers in North America. And Louis is here today in the back there somewhere. I think he's going to be reading here at the Penn Club sometime in April. On freedom. I'll wait till that ends. <laughs> On freedom. Of the lives of old cocks and dogs, I am somewhat envious. Just observe the old cock within this chicken coop. Oh my, alone with a hen and its daughter. No need to regard the church and its orders. And the canine, look at this fellow, undaunted by the cop's whistle and ignoring the threat of do not urinate here. It would seem then freedom is theirs. But were I to think on it, I'd rather have the life of a man, for I have the liberty to make of the dog an hors d'oeuvre, and no one will stop me should I turn the old boy into fried chicken. Uh, I'm going to read you A Light from the Sea by Neruda and uh, another poem of his. 
uh, in which I think he tells us things which almost open up into prayers at the end. This is called A Light from the Sea, translated by Ben Bellet. Once more, the, seas, the sea lights immensity, the sky fall in flagons, climbing the spume and the sea silt, disturbance of light and the ocean's extension, thunderbolts, a quarrel of knives, lights in the sweltering salts and the sky, upright like a tower of brine on the waters. Where do the griefs go? The breast opens out like a branch and its leafage. Light works in our hearts like a volley of butterflies. There shines for the day of the sea all the innocent presences, the pebble embraced by the wave, the shipwrecked debris of the, of the bottle glass, glazes of water, suavities honed by the touch of a star. There burn the bodies, bracken and salt on the men, the women all green, the children like pond weeds, fish forms that leap for the sky. Should the windows recesses, the bulking of clothing, the darkening lift of the land presume on that dazzle or disfigure the brightness, the clarities foam in the bubbles, light widens the sleeve and harries the insolent shadow in a might of white arms, altar cloths, tinsel, in breakers of gold, in marbles of spindrift and tumbrils of lilies. Light ripens its powers in the spaces, O billow that pierces without wetting the bather, pivot and flank of a universe, regenerate rose re-arising. Open each day with your petals and eyelids. Grant us your cleanly, cleanly celerities to widen our onlooking. Bring us to see, in the end, the sea moving, wave upon wave, and flower after flower, all the earth. Uh, this poem of his, of his Nerudus, is Sonata with Some Pines. In the half-sun of the long days, let us bed our tired bones and put out of mind the betrayers, the unpitying friends. The sun shakes in the pine trees. Leave the heedless, unheeded. There are kingdoms under the earth, little laggard republics. Forget all the lucky ones and abandon their tooth marks. Let the finicles sleep on their sterile divans while we pour on those curious stones packed with lusters and riddles and rise in the green light of dawn with the desperate trains. Let us finger the doomsday that moved with us always and forget how the injured ones gnaw their injustice. Above us the trees leave a counter-crossed half-sky of pine wires and shadows in the disheveling air. Let us put out of mind with no pride those who never could cherish us, who hunted the Holocaust like ourselves and obliviously fell. Nothing has greatness but sea spray at eight in the morning. A dog sniffs the sea line and comes closer, mistrusting the water. The breakers drive landward, wearing white like a schoolboy. The sun tastes of salt, and the smell of funeral seaweed is of childbirth and charnel house. What does our nothingness seek? 
and where will the others abandon you? A changing of blouses and skins and our hair and our callings. It is good, good to ponder the earth a little, kiss one's wife in the morning to belong to the innocent air and disdain oligarchies. When I journeyed from mist into mist to float in my hat, I met no one with highways. All went bemused. All had something to sell me. No one asked who I was until one day I encountered myself and was grazed by a smile in the half sky and the leafage. Let us come with our tiredness. Let us talk with the roots and the malcontent waves. Let us put out of mind all celerity and the tooth of the capable. Put the spleen from our minds, the malign miscellany, and make earthy our calling and touch earth with our spirits. And this is the third little thing, but this is a small poem by Neruda, uh, in which somebody says, his witch is not so much to approach a people as to be them. Each day I learn something, combing my hair every day. I think what you think, walk as you walk, and eat as you do. I circle my love with my arms as you circle yours, and then when all's known and each is made equal, I write. I write with your life and my own. Well, I'll read you the Bob Dylan uh, song first. A student of mine on Thursday wrote it out for me in class. Uh, Blowing in the Wind. How many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? How many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? How many times must the cannonball fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blown in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. How many times can a man look up before he can see the sky? How many ears must, must, excuse me, How many ears must one man have before he can hear people cry? How many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. How many years can a mountain exist before it is washed to the sea? How many years can some people exist before they are allowed to be free? How many times can a man turn his head pretending he just doesn't see? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. This last short E. E. Cummings poem. Love is a place, and through this place of love, move with brightness of peace, all places. Yes is a world, and in this world of yes live skillfully curled all worlds. I, uh, I know that Thomas Hardy is quoted in a good cause, but I can't forget that it was he who says that war makes rattling good history and peace is poor reading. Uh, it is our task today to prove that uh, peace is not poor reading.
at all. Our next writer for peace needs no introduction to you, but uh, some of you may have forgotten to go to the store to buy his new volume, and uh, I ask you to remedy that lack uh, tomorrow, first thing. His new volume is Collected Poems 1947-1980, and it has been rightfully praised as a signal piece of importance in American literature. And uh, as you read any part of it, or I would hope all of it, you will understand why that judgment has been made. Allen Ginsberg. The first poem I'll read is Irritable rather than peaceful. But Thomas Hardy also said that the road, quote, the road to a true philosophy of life seems to lie in recording the diverse appearances of its phenomena as and when they appear. World karma. China be China. Han Dynasty clay armies underground. The first emperor's improvements on burying his armies alive. But Ming tombs buried excavator architects and Mao officially buried 20 million in shit, death, and suicide, especially bilingual, sophisticated physicists, doctors, intelligentsia, and also anybody questioned his imperial vision of pure land, future communist afterworld. Russia had czars and Stalin. Everybody got drunk afterward. Everyone still whispers on street corners. America was always democratic. Lawless sheriffs shot Indians, bad men, good men, chinks, Jews, niggers, and each other. (laughs) Spain always killed bulls and loved blood, matadors and crucifixion. The Jews always complained, kvetching about false gods and erected the biggest false god, Jehovah, in the middle of Western civilization for creating the judge. The Jews are judged, that's their world karma continuing. British always had a sense of superiority, class, stiff upper lip, the queen and fuck you ducking up your bloody old. The French advanced sense of superiority, stiff back, Algeria is always indissolubly a part of La France. We will not regret the necessity to kill you or anyone who disagrees. They appreciate everything, wine, women, song, modern art, ooh la la, they're so smart introduced opium cultivation. Indochina will always be an indissoluble addiction to La France, the Boers. Germans had Kaisers, Hitlers, orderly, meticulous, and rational, a bunch of beasts. Now they want nuclear arms. They're also intelligent. They pride themselves on their science, their romantic poetry, their black forest, mysterious, full of solitude, acid rain, high-tech civilization. First the ovens of Auschwitz, now goodbye ancient trees, We have to keep up with the vulgar Americans. (laughs) Italy, the trains never ran on time. They got good shoes and the Pope and Mafia, but they got good tomatoes and Angelico Beato. Who'd want to complain in Naples or Florence? India, for a thousand years since Allah smashed Buddha's statues, been a mess. No forests, desert farmland. Isn't he a starved near death for centuries? 
In 200 years, America will have a billion people and neon China. Computerized students will sleep six a bed and hawk their mucus on the morning floor before fighting to get into the shower, much less a piece of soap and half a stick of bacon with their petrochemical Wheaties and eggs. That's because we had to get back to America. Let's stand up tall so we can insult the rest of the world. More. The Muslims, expansionist monotheists, will go jihad whenever they're able. Always their God, the best God, the only God, the only name, Allah. And die like a dog if you don't believe me. From Morocco to Java, heathen dogs and cats go barking and meow after terrific nobodaddy. In paradise, the western lands, the heaven, pure land, garden of the sky, the other side of eternal dream time, I vote for the Australian Aborigines. Let them run the world after high-techs annihilated all other species and genetic strains from whale to donkey sperm. <laughs> Several uh, poems in different mode. Reading the Chinese poet Bai Chu Yi. Po Chu Yi, as he was spelled in... Uh, uh, the uh, traditional anthologies now with a new spelling, Pai Chu Yi. As in in uh, Robert Payne's White Pony, it was Po Chu Yi. You might be familiar with his work. A series of poems, so I'll read a few until my 10 minutes are over. One, I'm a traveler in a strange country, China, and I've been to many cities. Now I'm back in Shanghai, days under warm covers in a room with electric heat a rare commodity in this country. Hundreds of millions shiver in the north. Students rise at dawn and run around the soccer field. Workmen sing songs in the dark to keep themselves warm while I sleep late, smoke too much, cough, turn over in bed on my right side, pull the heavy quilt over my nose and go back to visit the dead in China, my father, mother, and immortal friends in dreams. Supper's served me. I can go out and banquet but prefer this week to stay in my room, recovering a cough. I don't have to sell persimmons on the street curb in Baoding like the lady with the white bandanaed head. Don't have to push my boat oars round a rocky corner in the Yangtze gorges or pole my way downstream from Yichang through yellow industrial scum on the river surface or carry water buckets on a bamboo pole over my shoulder to a cabbage field near Wuxi I'm famous. My poems have done some men good and a few women ill. Perhaps the good outweighs the bad. I'll never know. Still, I feel guilty I haven't done more. True, I praise the Dharma from nation to nation, but my own practice has been amateur, seedy. Even I dream how bad a student I am. My teachers tried to help me, but I seem to be lazy and have taken advantage of money and clothes my works brought me. Today, I'll stay in bed again and read old Chinese poets. I don't believe in an afterworld of God or even another life separate from this incarnation. Still, I worry I'll be punished for my carelessness after I'm dead, my poems scattered and my name forgotten, and myself reborn a foolish workman freezing and breaking rocks on a roadside in Hobei. Two, ignorant and contentious. I spent lunch arguing about boys making love with a Chinese student. Still coughing, reclusive, I went back to bed with a headache, despite afternoon sun streaming through French windows weekly to write down these thoughts. 
Why have I wanted to appear heroic? Why strain to accomplish what no mortal could? Heaven on earth, self-perfection, household security, and the accomplishment of changing the world. A noble ambition, but that of a pathetic dreamer. Tomorrow, if I recover from bronchitis, I'll put on a serious face and go down to the market. <clears throat> China bronchitis. I sat up in bed and pondered what I'd learned while I lay sick almost a month. That monks who could convert waste to treasure were no longer to be found among the millions in the province of Hobei that the secret of the golden lotus has been replaced by the literature of the scar, nor has hardly anybody heard of the meditation cushion of the flesh, that smoking Chinese or American cigarettes makes me cough. Old men had got white-haired and bald before my beard showed signs of its 58th nose, that of the three gorges on the Yangtze, the last one downstream is a hairpin turned between high thousand-foot rock mountain gates. I learned that the great leap forward caused millions of families to starve, that the anti-rightist campaign against bourgeois stinkers sent revolutionary poets to shovel shit in Xinjiang province a decade before the Cultural Revolution drove countless millions of readers to cold huts and starvation in the countryside northwest, that sensitive poetry girls in Shanghai dream of aged stars from Los Angeles movies. That, that down the alley from the stone bridge at Zuzhou, where Zhang Ji spent a sleepless night wakened by the bell of cold mountain temple, water lapping against his wooden boat a thousand years ago, <clears throat> a tea house stands with two stringed violin and flutes and old men looking at a wooden stage. That the gold in the sun setting at West Lake Hangzhou is manufactured from black soft coal that roast red-skinned juicy entire dogs with eyes bulging from their foreheads hang in the market at Canton, <clears throat> that so-chan meditation practice is frowned on and martial health qigong practice approved by Marxist theoreticians, that men in deep blue suits might be kind enough to file a report to your unit on gossip they've heard about your secret loves. That hung you, hung you song is heard when workmen labor yodeling on bamboo scaffolds over the street outside all night building libraries and apartments. That most people have thought, we're just little men. What can we count since the time of Xin Shi Huang? Thank you. The wonderful Allen Ginsberg. The uh, next segment will be Grace Paley, Oscar Huelos, and Francis Fitzgerald uh, beginning promptly at 4.30. Let's take a 10-minute uh, break or so. I want to thank you on behalf of Penn for being here and helping to make this occasion the event that it is and encourage you to have some wine and cider if you would like. Will the people in the hallway and the bar rejoin us, please? Those who want to sit up front on the floor are encouraged to do so. There's plenty of uh, 
floor room here for those with uh, young joints. <coughs> My name is Kirkpatrick Sale. I am the host for this afternoon, this extraordinary afternoon of readings for peace. As those of you who have been here from the start will know, we join today in an international effort of writers raising their voice on, on behalf of peace and joining with writers the world around. What makes the Pan American Center different as an organization, as a literary organization, is that it is part of Penn International. And Penn International is a collection of 86 separate Penn centers throughout the world in 64 different countries. And on this day, in all of those centers, the writers have been asked to speak out on behalf of peace and resistance to war and nuclear annihilation. And so as we are speaking here today, others around the world are joining in this effort in the hope that our voices may aid in that swelling chorus necessary for the survival of all of us. The third point of the Penn Charter describes the event today around the world. Members of Penn should at all times use what influence they have in favor of good understanding and mutual respect between nations. They pledge themselves to do their utmost to dispel race, class, and national hatreds, and to champion the ideal of one humanity living in peace in one world. And that's what we are about today, and that's why we have been able to draw from the ranks of the distinguished members of Penn some of these notable writers who have come today to add their voices. Notable among them, indeed, is Grace Paley, whose name is virtually synonymous with the peace movement. Her new novel, Later the Same Day, will be published in April. Her earlier works are The Little Disturbances of Man and Enormous Changes at the Last Minute. She teaches at Sarah Lawrence and City College. She has for years worked with such groups as the War Resisters League and Women's Pentagon Action. And uh, Penn is indeed proud to have her join us this afternoon. Grace Paley. Just before I, um, just before this, I've never had one lower, lower than me. Uh, <laughs> just, just before this, I was interviewed by a, uh, newspaper and uh, asked whether I thought this would do any good. And uh, I said, well, you know, I'm hopeful. <laughs> but in case it doesn't, um, 
I think um, you ought to write a letter to um, Reagan and to um, Moynihan and D'Amato and say that we don't want to go into uh, Central America, just in case this isn't enough, okay? <laughs> uh, Um, I'm going to read. I'm also. I'm going to read a couple of poems from um, from Vietnam from from those days, which are not so long ago. Uh, which are only, I guess, ten years. This is the tenth anniversary of the end of that uh, that particular war. As uh, as we're preparing for almost the same in a much smaller and poorer country, uh, Nicaragua. Uh, so these are a couple of poems I wrote after going there. And uh, I'll read a couple of these, and then I'll read a little story. Um, I visited a number, three villages, and this is one of them. In Chong Chok, a village of 850 households, there is a chart in the House of Traditions. It says, rockets, 522. Attacks, 1,201. Big bombs, 6,998. Napalm, 1,383. Time bombs, 267. Shells, 12,291. Pellet bombs, 2,213. Mr. Tuong of the Fatherland Front has a little book. In it, he keeps the facts carefully added. In Duk Nin, a, a village of 1,654 households, over 100 tons of rice and cassava were burned. 18,138 cubic meters of dike were destroyed there were 1,077 air attacks. Mr. Tot said, the land is more exhausted than the people. I mean to say that the poor earth is tossed about, thrown into the air again and again. It knows no rest. Whereas the people have dug tunnels and trenches, they are able in this way to lead normal family lives. That's so funny. Third village. Last week, seven Americans swam in the Gulf of Tonkin, guarded by the sampans of the Nyan Trak Fishing Cooperative. This village was attacked 846 times. For each inhabitant, 260 bombs were dropped. There isn't a household that's intact. On the highest dune, the villagers have just built a small brick house for four old men whose lives have passed in war. When they look out the back window, they see the stumps of their village, the grassy cluster of tunnels. Below them is the sea. On the white sand, the nets are mended and the militia trained. What do they think when they look at the sea? And seven Americans are swimming in the Pacific with 11 members of the Vietnam American Solidarity Committee. Um, this, this is a poem that's um, it's about slogans because, you know, uh, for those of us who do any sort of uh, 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 picketing, or I mean, a lot of people here I recognize from various places, and uh, we always we're, we always have to yell these slogans, and most of them are really crummy, and uh, and I think they're ad they're influenced by advertising. You know, they're very sh they're short and pithy, and and uh, don't say anything. Um, so. When I was in Vietnam, I was really very interested in the slogans. They were extremely long. So um, uh, this is really about slogans, this little poem, and it's about the women also. Um, I really look forward to a time when we can walk along and just say some of these at great length, you know, in a kind of a jumble of uh, 
synchronousness. <laughs> I don't think that works. Anyway, this is about the women of that country. Sometimes they spoke in slogans. They said, we patch the roads as we patch our sweetheart's trousers. The heart will stop, but not the transport. They said, we have ensured production even near bomb craters. Children, let your voices sing higher than the explosions of the bombs. They said, we have important tasks to teach the children that the people are the collective masters to bear hardship, to instill love in the family, to guide for good health of the children. They must wear clothing according to climate. They said, once men beat their wives, now they may not. Once a poor family sold its daughter to a rich old man, now the young may love one another. They said, once we planted our rice any old way, now we plant the young shoots in straight rows so the imperialist pilot can see how steady our hands are. In the evening, we walked along the shores of the lake of the restored sword. I said, is this true? We are sisters? They said, yes, we are of one family. Now I'm going to read you a little story. It's called Anxiety, and it uh, relates to what we're talking about here today. The young fathers are waiting outside the school. What curly heads, such graceful brown mustaches. They're sitting on their haunches, eating pizza and exchanging information. They're waiting for the 3 p.m. bell. It's springtime, the season of first looking out the window. I have a window box of greenhouse marigolds. The young fathers can be seen through the ferny leaves. The bell rings. The children fall out of school, tumbling through the open door. One of the fathers sees his child, a small girl. Is she Chinese? A little. Up. <laughs> up, he says, and hoists her to his shoulders. Up, up, says a second father, and hoists his little boy. The little boy sits on top of his father's head for a couple of seconds before sliding to his shoulders. Very funny, says the father. They start off down the street, right under and past my window. The two children are still laughing. They try to whisper a secret. The fathers haven't finished their conversation. The frailer father is a little uncomfortable. His little girl wiggles too much. Stop at this minute, he says. Oink, oink, says the little girl. What'd you say? Oink, oink, she says. The young father says, what? Three times. Then he seizes the child, raises her high above his head, and sets her hard on her feet. <laughs> what? I, I hired that kid. <laughs> what I do so bad, she says, rubbing her ankle. Just hold my hand, screams the frail and angry father. I lean far out the window. Stop, stop, I cry. The young father turns, shading his eyes, but sees. What, he says? His friend says, hey, who's that? He probably thinks I'm a family friend, a teacher maybe. Who are you, he says. I move the pots of marigold aside. Then I'm able to lean on my elbow, way out into unshadowed visibility. Once, not too long ago, the tenements were speckled with women like me, in every third window up to the fifth story, calling the children from play to receive orders and instruction. This memory enables me to say strictly, young man, I am an older person who feels free because of that to ask questions and give advice. <laughs> oh, he says, laughs with a little embarrassment. 
says to his friend, shoot, if you will, that old gray head. But he's joking, I know, because he has established himself, legs apart, hands behind his back, his neck arched, to see and hear me out. How old are you, I call? About 30 or so? 33. First, I want to say you're about a generation ahead of your father in your attitude and behavior towards your child. <laughs> really? Well, anything else, ma'am? <laughs> Son, I said, leaning another two, three dangerous inches toward him. Son, I must tell you that mad men intend to destroy this beautifully made planet, that the imminent murder of our children by these men has got to become a terror and a sorrow to you, and starting now, it had better interfere with every daily pleasure. I waited a minute, but he continued to look up. So, I said, I can tell by your general appearance and loping walk that you agree with me. I do, he said, winking at his friend, but turning a serious face to mine, he said again, Yes, yes, I do. Well, then, why did you become so angry at that little girl whose future is like a film which suddenly cuts to white? Why did you nearly slam this little doomed person to the ground in your uncontrollable anger? Let's not go too far, said the young father. She was jumping around on my poor back and hollering, oink, oink. When were you angriest, when she wiggled and jumped or when she said, oink? He scratched his wonderful head of dark, well-cut hair. I guess when she said oink. Have you ever said oink, oink? Think carefully. <laughs> Years ago, perhaps? No. Well, maybe, maybe. Whom did you refer to in this way? He laughed. He called to his friend. Hey, Ken, this old person's got something. The cops in a demonstration. Oink, oink, he said, remembering, laughing, the little girl smiled and said, oink, oink. Shut up, he said. <laughs> what do you deduce from this? That I was angry at Rosie because she was dealing with me as though I was a figure of authority, and it's not my thing, never has been, and never will be. <laughs> I could see his happiness, his nice grin, as he remembered this. So, I continued, since those children are such lovely examples of what may well be the last generation of humankind, why don't you start all over again, right from the school door, as though none of this had ever happened? Thank you, said the young father. Thank you. It would be nice to be a horse, he said, grabbing little Rosie's hand. Come on, Rosie, let's go. I don't have all day. Up, says the first father. Up, up, says the second. Get up, shout the children, and the fathers yell, nay, as horses do. The children kick their father's horse chest, screaming, get up, get up, and they gallop wildly westward. I lean way out to cry once more, be careful, stop, but they've gone too far. Oh, anyone would love to be a fierce, fast horse carrying a beloved, beautiful rider, but they are galloping toward one of the most dangerous street corners in the world, and they may live beyond that trisection across other dangerous avenues. So I must shut the window after patting the April-cooled marigolds with their deep, deep smell of summer. Then I sit in the nice light, and I wonder how to make sure that they gallop safely home through the airy, scary dreams of scientists and the bulky dreams of automakers. I wish I could see just how they sit down at the kitchen tables for a healthy snack, orange juice or milk and cookies, before going out into the new spring afternoon to play.
My dear friend and neighbor, Grace Paley, invaluable as always. Apropos of Vietnam, actually apropos of Grace Paley, I should point out that the first two poems that she read were printed not in the Atlantic and the New Yorker or something fancy like that. They're from Wynn Magazine, published by the War Resistance League. Uh, a, uh, a measure of her devotion to the cause. Uh, also apropos of Vietnam, I want to announce that there is a new magazine called Intervention, uh, a few of the copies of which I have here, which is looking for statements from writers um, on issues pertaining to the 10th anniversary of the fall of Saigon and the Vietnam War. Uh, the magazine is called Intervention. The editor is Tom Nussbaumer. It is at 545 West 111th Street, and the details are here, should any of you be interested in contributing to that. Our next participant in the International Writers for Peace Day is Oscar Huelos. His latest book is Our House in the Last World. He is a full-time writer and will read from a range of historical figures on the subject of peace. The uh, name of my uh, talk is A Few Fragments Regarding Earlier Writings for Peace. I have official notes which I'll read from, but it's been so spontaneous, I'd rather not, but I will. On the occasion of this reading for peace, I thought I might present a few thoughts on this subject that go back in time to the voices of other men, which is to say, writings for peace that have gone on, that writings for peace have gone on for a long, long time, have always gone on. From Ovid of Sulmul, who was born in 43 BC. Honorable peace becomes men, fierce anger becomes beasts. This is from the Fasti by Ovid, poems written for, a poem written for a feast day describing the virtue of peaceful farming. War occupied men for a long time. The sword was handier than the plowshare then. The plow ox gave way to the war horse Hoes were idle, and mattocks transformed into javelins, and a helmet made from a heavy rake. Thank the gods. Under your foot, war has long been laid in chains. The ox comes to be yoked. Plant the seed in the earth. Peace nourishes Ceres, goddess of grain. Ceres is the foster child of peace. From another poem to peace, this fragment, you, peace, shall be for our leaders a glory greater than war. From Lucretius, who was born in 94 BC, on what happened to men when they were no longer prey to wild animals. And my next line, which I crossed out, was, and did not poison themselves on wild berries, but I've included it. In simpler times, it more often happened that an individual victim would furnish living food to a beast of prey. But it never happened then that many thousands of men, 
following the standards were led to death on a single day. In simpler times, then, it was a lack of food that brought men at last to death. Now it is excess that proves too much for them. The men of old in their ignorance often served poison to themselves. Now, with greater skill, they administer it to others. This is from the Iliad on death. The horses rattled the empty chariots through the files of battle, longing for their noble, dri noble drivers, but they on the ground lay dearer to the vultures than to their wives. And the death of Hector, dropping his spear, he knelt down, holding out his arms. Achilles, drawing his sharp sword, struck through the neck and breastbone. The two-edged sword sunk home its full length, the other, face down, lay still, and the black blood ran out, wetting the ground. From Cicero, laws are silent in wartime, and indeed nothing is more disgraceful than to wage war with him whom you have lived with in friendship. From Sophocles of Colonus, who wrote, was writing in the 5th century BC, and this might apply to Westmoreland, it is the merit of a general to impart good news and conceal the bad. <laughs> from, <clears throat> from the uh, lyric poet Archilochus of Paros. Now, I read about this guy, and he apparently perfected iambic meter in poetry. And he lived in 714 BC. And he wrote such devastating poems that he drove a family, of, a family to commit suicide because he insulted and slandered them, which should make the poets here very happy. So, <laughs> anyway, um, this is something, a, a meditation he wrote while after having run away from the Thracians in the heat of a battle. Well, I made the Thracian glorious with my shield, which I left in the bushes without a scratch, but I escaped the point of death. That shield to hell with it, I'll get another. Unfortunately, he was killed in battle in 676 BC, but these things happen, okay. From Herodotus, <clears throat> war is unnatural. Indeed, there is no one with any intelligence who would desire war over peace. In this peace, indeed, the sons bury their fathers, while in that war, fathers bury their sons. From Herodotus describing the destruction of the Acropolis by the Persians, when the uh, Persians destroyed the Acropolis, they ruined the crops of Attica and, in fact, ruined the economy for 40 years. And the Greeks suffered greatly after this battle. A man arrived from Athens with the news that the Persians had entered Attica and that the whole country was ablaze. This was the work of the division of the army under Xerxes, which had taken the route through Boeotia. They had burnt Thespia after the inhabitants had escaped, and burned Plataea too, and then entered, entered Attica, where they were causing wholesale devastation. The Persians, after a siege, stormed the Acropolis, and I quote again, the Persians made straight for the temple gates, flung them open, and butchered every man who had hoped to find refuge there. Having left not one of them alive, they stripped the temple of its treasures and destroyed the whole Acropolis with fire. On the following day, he, Xerxes, 
summoned Athenian exiles who were serving with the Persian forces and ordered them to go up into the Acropolis and offer sacrifice. Possibly some dream had suggested this to him, or perhaps his conscience was uneasy for the burning of the temple. I, Herodotus, mention these details for a reason. On the Acropolis, there is a spot which is sacred, and within it an olive tree and a spring of salt water, put there by Poseidon and Athena when they contended for possession of the land as their tokens of claim to it. Now it happened that this olive tree was destroyed by fire with the rest of the sanctuary. Nevertheless, on the very next day, when the Athenians ordered by the king to offer sacrifice went to that sacred place, they saw that a new shoot 18 inches long had sprung from the stump. From a slave poet named Chachilius Stachius, he who plants trees will benefit another generation. From Pliny the Elder, who perished when Mount Vesuvius erupted, a tree is a monument to peace. It is perhaps fitting that we should remember that throughout the long history of uh, the human animal, there have been far more times of peace than of war. And that if the history books are full of wars, we shouldn't delude ourselves into believing that that is the normal or inevitable condition of humankind. Our next reader is Francis Fitzgerald, a distinguished and, I want to say, courageous journalist, whom I trust is known to you. She is the author of the prize-winning Fire in the Lake, speaking again of Vietnam, and America Revised. She is now working on a book about communities in the United States, uh, a... Uh, a state of affairs, the community, that is to say, devoutly to be wished, and one which uh, in itself can uh, help to ensure peace against the monstrous nationalities of the world. Frankie Fitzgerald. Thank you, Kirk. Uh, I had thought to read perhaps from Fire in the Lake, but I couldn't find very much about peace in it. So uh, I, I, uh, I thought instead to read you uh, the end of The Good Soldier, Schweik, which I'm sure is known to most of you. But I love the ending of it. A courier came galloping up from br brigade headquarters with a new order for the 11th Company. Their line of route was changed so as to lead to Felston. Warlich and Sambor were to be avoided because, owing to the presence of two Poznan regiments, it would be impossible for them to find billets there. Lieutenant Lukash immediately issued instructions. He told Quartermaster Sergeant Vanik, together with Schweik, to find a night's quarters for the company at Felstein. And see so you don't get into any mischief on the way, Schweik, said Lieutenant Lukash. Above all, behave properly towards any of the people you come across. 
Beg to report, sir, I'll do my best, but I had a nasty dream when I dozed off early this morning. I dreamed about a wash tub that kept slopping over all night in the passage of the house where I lived till it had dripped away and soaked the landlord's ceiling, and he gave me notice on the spot. The funny part of it, sir, is that something like that really happened at Carlin behind the viaduct. Look here, Schweig, you better stop all that twaddle and have a look at the map and help Vanek to find out which way you're to go. From this village, you bear right to the right till you reach the river, then you follow the river as far as the next village. From there, at the spot where the first stream, which you'll find on your right, flows into this one, you cut across the fields upward due north, and that'll bring you to Felstein. You can't miss it. Can you remember all of that? Schweig thought he could, and so he set out with Quartermaster Sergeant Vanek in accordance with these particulars. It was the beginning of the afternoon. The landscape seemed to be wilting in the swelter, and the stench of decay wafted from the pits in which soldiers had been buried and not properly covered up. They now entered a region where fight fighting had taken place in the advance to Prezmils, and whole battalions had been mowed down by machine guns. In the small thickets by the river could be seen the havoc wrought by the artillery. There were large areas and slopes which had once been dotted with trees, but all that was left of them was jagged stumps jutting from the ground and this wilderness was furrowed with trenches. It looks a bit different from Prague, said Schweik, when the silence had become impressive. And then, after a pause, he continued, there'll be a fine harvest here after the war. They won't have to buy any bone meal. It's a good thing for farmers when they got a whole regiment rotting away on their fields. There's no manure can beat it. This reminds me of Lieutenant Holub, who used to be in the barracks at Carlin. Everyone thought he was a bit dotty because he never called us names and always kept his hair on when he talked to us. One day we, re we reported to him that our bread rations wasn't fit to eat. Any other officer would have made it hot for us, but having the, the cheek to grouse about our grub. But not he. Oh, dear, no. He just stood there, cool as you please, and he didn't call anyone a skunk or a swine or a bloody fool, and he didn't give anyone a smack in the eye. He just makes the men stand around him and says to him, civil as could be. First of all, he says, you must bear in mind that a barracks ain't a delicatessen store where you can get pickled eels and sardines in oil and assorted sandwiches. Every soldier ought to have enough sense, he says, to eat his rations without any grousing, and he's got to show enough discipline not to make any fuss about the quality of stuff that's given to him, him to eat. Just suppose, he said, there's a war. Well... The ground you get buried in after a battle don't care a damn what sort of bread you've been eating before you pegged out. Mother Earth, he said, just takes you apart and eats you up, boots and all. Nothing gets lost, and what's left of you, there'll be a fresh crop of wheat to make bread rations for other soldiers who'll perhaps start grousing like you, except that they'll come up against someone who'll shove them into the clink and keep them there till God knows when, because he's a right to. So now, he says, I made it all clear to you, and I hope you'll bear it in mind, and no one will come here with any more complaints. Well, that got the men's back up the way he kept a civil tongue in his head. Why don't he tell us off properly, they says to each other. And so one day they picked me out to go and tell him that we all liked him, but we didn't sort of feel we was in the army, so long as he never told us off properly. Well, off I go to call on him, and I ask him not to be so smooth-spoken because the chaps expect to get it in the neck when they're in the army, and they're used to being told every day that they're skunks and bloody fools, or else they don't have any respect for their superior officers. 
At first, he wouldn't hear of it and talked a lot of stuff about intelligence and how it ought to be a thing of the past for men to be ruled with a rod of iron. But in the end, he saw my point and gave me a smack in the eye and kicked me downstairs so should, we should all think the more of him. Well, I told the other chaps what had happened, and they were all very pleased, but then he went and spoiled everything the next day. He comes up to me in front of everyone and says, I acted a bit hasty yesterday, Schweig, so here's a golden to drink my health with. You can't get away from it. An officer ought to know better than that. Schweig now inspected the landscape. It strikes me, he says, that we've taken the wrong road. Lieutenant Lukash explained it to us all right. We've got to go up and down, and then to the left, and then to the right, and then to the right again, and then to the left, and we're keeping straight on. I can see some crossroads in front of us, and if you ask me, I should say we ought to go to the left. When they reached the crossroads, Quartermaster Sergeant Vanek affirmed that they ought to go to the right. Well, anyhow, this is the way I'm going, said Schweik. It's a more comfortable road than yours. I'm going along by the stream where the forget-me-nots grow. And if you want to traipse along in the broiling heat, you can. I stick to what Lieutenant Lukash told us. He said we couldn't miss the way. So I'm going to take it easy across the fields and pick some flowers. Don't be a fool, Schweig, said Quartermaster Sergeant Vanek. You can see from the road that we've got to go right, like I said. Maps are wrong sometimes, replied Schweig as he strolled down, downhill towards the stream. I know a pork butcher who tried to get home one night from Prague to Vinorodi, and he followed a map, and the next morning he was found lying stiff and deadbeat in a cornfield near Cladno. If you won't take my word for it, Sergeant, and you're so cocksure you're right, well, we'll just have to part, and we'll meet again when we get to Felstein. Just look at your watch, and then we'll know who gets there first. And if you get into any danger, just fire into the air, so as I'll know where you are. Later in the afternoon, Schweik reached a small pond where he came across an escaped Russian prisoner who was bathing there. When he saw Schweik, he took to his heels, stark naked. Schweik rather wondered how the Russian uniform, which was lying under the willow trees, would suit him. So he took off his own uniform and dressed himself in the clothes belonging to the unfortunate naked prisoner who had escaped from the convoy that was quartered in the village on the other side of the forest. Schweik was anxious to have a look at his reflection in the water, and so he lingered beside the brink of the pond for some long time that he was discovered there by a field patrol who was looking for the Russian fugitive. They were Magyars, and in spite of Schweik's protest, they took him off to the base in Churawa, where they put him among a gang of Russian prisoners who were being sent to repair the railway line leading to Pries Mills. The whole thing happened so suddenly that Schweig did not realize until the next day what had happened to him. And on the white wall of the schoolroom, where a part of the prisoners were quartered, he inscribed with a piece of charred wood, Here slept Joseph Schweig of Prague, company orderly of the 11th draft of the 91st Regiment, who, while looking for billets, was taken prisoner near Felstein by the Austrians by mistake. This poster that you see behind me was designed by a young Japanese artist on behalf of Japanese pen. And copies of it have been sent to every pen center in the world, which is using it today as the theme 
interlinking this International Day of Writers for Peace. It is a symbol of a bird flying into the morning sunrise, which in Japanese eyes, at least, is a symbol of peace. Copies of the poster are available at a dollar apiece, as is uh, wine and cider in the back. And uh, we'll take one last break. We'll turn to hear Derek Parsons reading the poems of uh, Gordon Parks, Arthur Copet, and Norman Mailer. Uh, we will reconvene precisely at uh, 5.25, and I hope you use the break to uh, give some thought to some personal ways that you might contribute to peace. Gentlemen and bar flies, smokers, and others, please come forward. There is some room up front if you wish to uh, sit on the floor. In our final segment this afternoon, we will continue our contribution to this day of International Writers for Peace. We've just been on the telephone with the Penn Center in Israel. They have completed a most successful Writers for Peace Day celebration in Tel Aviv with Jewish and Arab writers together. An extremely well-attended affair. And they have decided to continue cooperation between those two languages and cultures in Israel under the banner of Israeli Penn Center. Throughout the world, writers are dedicating this day to peace. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, those of you who have not had enough of our event here this afternoon can get on an airplane and go to Los Angeles because they are having, this afternoon, their contribution at the Los Angeles Penn Center uh, under the direction of their president, Malcolm Boyd. Uh, I, I am told that you cannot go on to Japan to attend their event because, for some reason, having to do with the sun and the international dateline and turns of the earth and so on, they've already had their event. But it, it, too, was a distinguished affair in Tokyo. There was uh, also a meeting of West German and East German Penn Centers meeting together today in celebration of peace. And so we join today in a truly international effort when writers are making their statement throughout the world to the world about the world. In our concluding segment, we will have Derek Parsons, Arthur Copet, and our dear president, Norman Mailer. Derek Parsons, a lifelong pacifist and conscientious objector, is a film editor, poet, 
and playwright who is here today on behalf of Gordon Park. Uh, he is uh, the son-in-law of Gordon Park to uh, offer to us Gordon Park's contribution to this day, Derek Parsons. Gordon Parks is a remarkable man. Photographer, composer, novelist, playwright, choreographer, there are probably a dozen other things he does. He seems to do almost everything, that man. One of his books is A Choice of Weapons, and he chose his many years ago. The still camera, the piano, a director's chair, a paintbrush, and a few items like that with which he, he has fought and continues to fight, intolerance, injustice, prejudice, misunderstanding. Unfortunately, he can't be here today. He has a prior commitment in California, but he asked me to give you his love, his fervent plea for peace, and some of his poems. This first one is, War is Ended. I return, the sub-hero of a Pyrrhic victory, a plunderer of God's time, betrayed by an enemy's scorn for my awesome power. I find that I am just a little warrior, dipping a thimble into a sea of blood and fear, where waves grow old and life is small, and death is no longer exquisite. History has abandoned me on this savage cliff where blinded gulls fly overhead, their wings limp and blood-soaked with conflicts of a thousand years. Alone now in this blackness, I realize that what happened was not for me. I should have staved off the compulsion to war through expendable days I should have better stayed back to tend cabbages and clip roses and drink the nectar of another spring. Instead, I took orders. I hoisted the banner of my empire. That skull, half buried there in the rubble, is not my doing. My soul is garbed in white. It sings my innocence against all past anger it disclaims those cadavers scattered wide upon that horizon of ravaged serenity. The Holocaust is over now, they say. So while death with its gargantuan hunger is for the moment out of range, let me fill this night with questions. <coughs> Whose end lies out there in the silvery murk? Where hides the victory that holds up the parade? Our sorrowing wives, where are they? And all the abandoned children. Is no one left to wave our ragged flag? Come and talk with me. Ask what I have suffered. Count the casualties I brought to one single day. Come, praise the notches in my carbine stock. Then, at dawn, 
let us limp off to pray. The next one is obligations. In the innocence of darkness, let us envy the blind. Of what we see, better they ask no questions. Of what they don't see, let us suffer for them. Footprints in red, thankless mud, black bones of trees smoldering on ashen landscapes, endless green meadows where, in rigid silence, young warriors lie beneath an infinity of crosses. For them we witness iron hawks blowing holes in the sky and dropping violent eggs to obliterate God's friends and murder away his enemies. In the chastity of solitude, let us begrudge the deaf, hear for them the language of violent places, whispers of fear hiding in our houses from one thing or the other. Of what we hear in the night, better they have no regret. The trumpeting of decision-makers hawking their bomb-proof dreams at prime-time hours and the emptiness of widows sobbing in the dust of defoliated pastures. Against those demonic things the deaf fail to hear, let us concoct one voice to soar relentlessly with the power of their silence. Dear Mr. Decision-Maker, if you would send us back wading through dust of fallen heroes, do not forget the fate of their discarded bones or the wisdom that plucked them bare. To you who chart the geography of our destiny, who with generals in secret rooms orchestrate first strike music to plug into our fears, don't lull us, too swiftly lull us toward the roaring silence. Death, you say, is impatient. In your haste to appease its nuclear hunger, consider another half dozen things we request the privilege of choosing our own ceremonial fire, the luxury of being born to an assigned place, of being covered with earth free of young men's blood and unscorched with mortar fire. And at last, allow that something recognizable of us be left to carry. That someone is spared to do the carrying who might utter for each of us a final prayer. This last one, I suggested to Gordon Parks that be read at this meeting, and he was a little dubious at first, and then thought about it and said, hmm, the way he's prone to do. Whether it is apt or not, perhaps you are the best judges. It's called Martyrdom at Kent State. In that brief volley, four young people were killed, 10 students were wounded, three seriously. And how could you hear my voice grown hoarse in praise of love flowers wilting in some strung out night, when even in cow fields I sang a million voiced war against your war, you didn't hear my singing? Not through the din of stiff-winged hawks laying hostile eggs on foreign nests, nor in the precise carbine stutter 
Not through the pow-shooming of rockets launched to fire the village shelter's straw and mix the mud swamp, bone and flesh. I come now, marching in, sitting in, loving in, putting my body talk on you so you might feel what you couldn't hear. I plant my black flag of pot leaf and blood color star and I tell you like it is, up the establishment to die without hope with limbs sprouting swords that I may fall upon, to die a foolish suicide, I refuse. I spurn the posthumous medals your generals pin on post-mortem chests. Pigs! Off the campus! I don't want your war! Shout your slogans, just keep it peaceful. Off the bull, off your pigs, I don't want your war! When action is short, keep the rhetoric cool. Just give peace a chance. Peace has fled at full gallop. You have challenged it to die. So rocks for your rifles and bricks for your gas. I hoist the flag and let my body talk. Charge! Their guns are filled with blanks and I am falling. I am struck. My God. A red river pours from my head beneath my book of history words to course the campus green. When dissent turns to violence, it invites tragedy. Off my grief, off my corpse. Thank you, Derek Parsons. Thank you, Gordon Parks. I want now, on behalf of Penn, to express my thanks, and I know your thanks, to this woman who stands before me now, Pamela, who is, who is the woman who has been chiefly responsible for putting this affair together and has guided it so well. Thank you indeed. Pamela Pierce. Our next contributor to this International Day of Peace is Arthur Copet, who I know will be known to all of you. Among his recent works are Wings and End of the World. End of the World uh, is a play, which uh, a work for those of you who uh, are familiar with it, uh, which is about the very topic that we are concerned with today. I give you reading from this work, Arthur Copet. This play was originally called, and it's a title that I love, it was, it was called End of the World with Symposium to Follow, uh, which was the hopeful sign. Down in Washington, when it was done at the Kennedy Center, I saw with my own eyes the hordes of people turning back their tickets because they didn't want to see anything with a symposium. <laughs> so it's been called End of the World, but for you, it's End of the World with Symposium to follow. Uh, I'm going to read two uh, small sections, and there will be three characters. The play is the most autobiographical uh, work that I've written. It is all what you're about to hear. I haven't made up a word of this. Uh, and. 
you will meet three characters. You will meet Michael Trent, who is the central character, who is a playwright who sees himself as a detective, very much in the uh, Raymond Chandler line, Maltese, Falcon, or, or, uh, or Dashiell Hammett, uh, on a quest uh, to find out what a mysterious benefactor named Philip Stone knows. You will also meet Philip Stone briefly in the second section. Philip Stone has commissioned a play. Philip Stone, all you need to know is that Philip Stone believes that the world is doomed, but by a method that is not readily apparent. In the first section, Trent is down in Washington, and he is talking to a man named Stanley Berent. Berent is a compilation of various people. Again, I haven't made up any of this. You will hear me using an odd voice. It is my attempt to use an Eastern European accent. For anyone who's Eastern European, forgive me. Um, but the, that's... Trent has, has just come from a meeting with a general. He's very confused. He's meeting the Hawks, the hardliners, as, as I did. It was my attempt to go into and find out who are these people who say we need more weapons and why. I'd come across Barron's name in my research. He was a Russian scholar connected to Georgetown University and a real hard liner, particularly where the Soviet Union was concerned. Japanese koto music is heard. We met at a small Japanese restaurant I assume he frequented out of war guilt. We sat on tatami mats, cross-legged, which made the experience even more excruciating. An inescapable feeling of unreality began to hang over all of this. Restaurant slides into view. Barrett. No, I agree with you completely. Our present nuclear policy does not make sense, not at all. Trent, why had the general sent me to this man? Berendt, what we must do, very simple, we must stop regarding nuclear war as some kind of goddamn inevitable holocaust and start looking at it as a goddamn war. <laughs> what? Says Trent. We have to learn how to wage nuclear war rationally. <laughs> what? Rationally, we've got to learn how to wage nuclear war rationally. I'm sorry, Saki, uh, th thank you. <laughs> you see, even though a strong case can be made for the fact that nuclear war is essentially an act of insane desperation and therefore fundamentally irrational, this doesn't mean that once you're in the thing, you shouldn't do it right. <laughs> Trent, I see. <clears throat> of course, this wouldn't seem to suggest you think it's possible to win a nuclear war. No, 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 limited nuclear war. No one can win an all-out nuclear war. Unless, of course, the other side decides not to hit back, and one could never count on that. Although, I must say, he stops and gives a brief command to a waitress in fluent Japanese. <clears throat> Although, I must say, in all the scenarios I've seen, the side that hits first definitely comes out best. So, if push comes to shove, you do go first, no question of it. Particularly, if you employ what we call a controlled counterforce strike with restraint. In effect, what you do is you hit everything but your opponent's cities. <laughs> Trent, that's the restraint part. Barrett, right. His cities are held hostage, and what you... I, I'm sorry, chopsticks? Uh, yes, chopsticks. And what you do is you tell him you'll demolish them if he doesn't capitulate. Now, this is actually quite reasonable. If, big if, big if, big if, if you have an adequate civil defense system. That way, even if the Russians strike back, you should be able to absorb the blow and still have enough left to strike back at them. And this time, just wipe them out. This is what I mean when I talk about credibility. What I have just described to you is a credible, offensive, and defensive nuclear strategy. What we have now, forgive my French, is diddly shit. <laughs> Japanese phrase. Uh, you don't speak Japanese, I take it. Trent, uh, no, why? Are you passing secrets? <laughs> secrets? Secrets? I'm, I'm not privy to secrets. Ah, thank you. Waitress delivers a noodle dish. <clears throat> now, 
Do I really know how to fight an illuminated nuclear war? Not at all. No one does. No one's fought one. And yet, if we're not prepared, we're in the soup. Okay, what do I propose? Trent, you're not eating. Baron, I'm not hungry. <clears throat> what do I propose? I propose we send a clear signal to the Russians, and this signal says, you fuck around with us, we're going to fuck around with you. This is the sort of talk the Russians understand. <clears throat> How do we do this? First, we build the MX, the Trident II, the Pershing II, and the Cruise. Why do I want these things? Because they have the ability to take out hardened targets. If we get into a major crisis with these people, I want the ability to disarm them to the greatest extent possible. Trent, disarm. Remove, says Barrett. Surgically remove as much of their military capabilities as possible. Trent, that's called a first strike, I believe. Oh, no. It's not? No. <laughs> Why? Because the connotation is aggressive. This is a defensive act. <clears throat> I see. Out of curiosity, what do you call it? Anticipatory retaliation. <laughs> I did. That's true. I didn't make that one. I, this is not... None of this is made up. Ah, Baron, some prefer preemptive strike, but that can get cumbersome because if you sense they're about to preempt you, then what you have to do is pre-preempt them. <laughs> Trent, getting into the spirit. And of course, if they should somehow become aware that you've discovered their plan to preempt and are about to preempt, they'll have to start discussing a pre-pre-preemptive strike and one can just get lost in that kind of talk. That's right, exactly. Anticipatory retaliation simply covers everything. Unfortunately, we can't even begin to consider this if we don't have the proper weapons. And we don't have them now? No, sir, we do not. I realize you're going to lose all respect for me, but isn't it possible we'd be better off not getting these things? Well, of course. If the Russians didn't have them, they have them, they're getting them. Where does this all end? When each of us is secure. Trent, well, that's fair enough. Baron, unfortunately, we're not even close. To be secure, the United States must possess a credible nuclear warfighting policy. Now, what might such a policy be? Trent, got me. Bernard, in a war, what do you think the Russian command would least like to lose? Trent, I would say offhand, Russia. <laughs> Short of that, half of Russia. Short of that, a third of Russia. Wrong approach. The point is to avoid killing civilians needlessly. Now, come on, think. In a war, outside of its population, what can the Soviet leadership least afford to lose? I don't know. Oh, come on. No, really, I don't know themselves themselves of course without a Kremlin without leadership you know what Russia's got it's got shit that's what it's got so how do we get rid of their leaders well we know where we are where they are and we bomb them surely they're not just going to sit there and wait no no they're going to hide that's expected I would think Russia's got a lot of hiding places of course and we know where they are and we target them sounds to me like you're going to wipe out all of Russia well that's certainly not what's intended it's just a side effect, you mean? Correct. <laughs> and this wouldn't piss them off? Piss who off? The Russians who are left. I see. They're all gone. That's right. <laughs> Trent, listen. Question. Let's say we've successfully wiped out the leaders somehow. Some of their population remain. We decide we want to stop this thing. With whom do we negotiate? Well, that is a genuine problem. Listen, this is just off the top of my head. Don't you think it might be a good idea to try really very seriously to negotiate something with these fellows now? Well, of course, that would be wonderful. And yet, if history shows anything, it shows that the Soviet Union cannot be trusted to keep the terms of a treaty. Trent, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Are you trying to tell me we shouldn't enter into treaties with these guys till we're convinced they can be trusted? That's correct. If we knew they could be trusted, why would we need treaties? They'd be like Canada. 
You know how long it takes an ICBM to hit us from Toronto? Two minutes. You think we're worried? Sayonara. He leaves. Trent, I could barely contain my excitement. I called Stone at the first payphone I could find. Lights up on Philip Stone. He's in a room in a wing chair. Okay, I've got it. Stone, got what, sir? The answer, the mystery is solved. I've discovered why we're doomed. Stone, really? And why is that? Trent, we're in the hands of assholes. <laughs> Hello? Stone, I'm afraid I cannot speak right now. Trent, why? Lights have come up to reveal that there is a man sitting in a wing chair. We see only his legs. The man appears to be smoking. Stone, sir, I can only tell you, if you persist in believing these men you've met are not smart or not dangerous, you are gravely mistaken. I can say no more. Not now. Okay. In the last act, Trent has now discovered, to his amazement, as I did, that virtually everyone down in Washington understands that the whole policy doesn't work. Reagan is now even saying deterrence doesn't work, which is the reason for this thing that really doesn't work, the Star Wars. <laughs> but anyway, the question is, if they all know it doesn't work, why are they working? He doesn't get the direct answer, but here is Philip Stone. And he says, have you ever been to the South Pacific? Trent says, no. Stone, remarkable place, beautiful beyond imagining. The imagination belittles its beauty. Anyway, I was there in the early 50s. A close friend of mine was involved in our nuclear tests and asked if I'd like to go along on the viewing ship. It was not inappropriate for me to be there, for among my many financial interests at that time was a laboratory and development center that was in Utah. Trent, you make weapons, Stone. I used to. In any event, there we were on this ship, this battleship, not too far from where the detonation was to take place, which was near an island known, interestingly enough, as Christmas Island. We've been told the bomb was to be a small one, and so none of us was particularly worried. Even though I'd never seen one go off, I figured, well, these people must know what they are doing. Actually, the truth is I was in a kind of funk. That's because I hadn't come all this way just to see a little bomb. This one was 10 kilotons, smaller even than the bomb at Hiroshima. These bombs were classified as tactical weapons. These are weapons you would use in combat, and quite frankly, I was disappointed. I wanted some big-time stuff, and I'm not ashamed to say it either. There's a glitter to nuclear weapons. I'd sensed it in others and felt it in myself. If you come to these things as a scientist, it is irresistible to feel it's there in your hands, so to speak. The ability to release this energy that fuels the stars, to make it do your bidding, to make it perform these miracles, to lift a million tons of rock into the sky and all from a thimble full of stuff, irresistible. Well, we were standing by the railing when the countdown came on. We could hear it over the PA. We'd all been adequately briefed, and we were in suits, some kind of lead, tinted visors on our helmets. And then I saw these birds, albatrosses, phenomenal creatures, truly. They'd been flying beside the boat for days, accompanying us to the site, so to speak. Watching them was a wonder. And suddenly I could see they were smoking. Their feathers were on fire, and they were doing cartwheels. The light persisted for some time. It was instantaneously bright, but not instantaneous, and lingered long enough for me to see the birds crash into the water. They were sizzling, smoking. They were not vaporized. It's just that they were absorbing such intense radiation that they were being consumed by the heat. And so far, there'd been no shock, none of the blast damage we talk about when we discuss the effects of these bombs. Instead, there were just these smoking, twisting, fantastically contorted birds crashing into things. And I could see vapor rising from the inner lagoon as the surface of the water was heated by the intense flash. Well, I'd never seen anything like this in my life. And I thought, this is what it will be like at the end of time. And we all felt the thrill of that idea.
Although I did say to myself, why am I laughing? He's absolutely right that that's the way they talk and think. That is a frightening fact. Our last reader tonight is Norman Mailer, who is the new president of the American Penn Center, under whose leadership we are having an international congress. The 1985 International Congress will take place next January. Not, as you might expect, in 1985 itself at all, but in 1986. Uh, and uh, I expect that to be an absolutely uh, stunning, moving, and glittering event. Uh, open uh, most of it uh, to the public and uh, drawing together writers from uh, around the world to a single place at a single time uh, to talk about the issues of the day, including peace. Norman's most recent books are Ancient Evenings and Tough Guys Don't Dance. And here he is, our friend Norman Mailer. At that uh, Congress, the, um, the rubric for the Congress is the uh, writer's imagination and the imagination of the state. And I think we've had uh, a preview of the imagination of the state. And, uh, but I, I, I think we were amused because uh, I think the only reason we ever laugh is when we perceive a great truth and immediately conceal it. And there's absolutely nothing to do with um, doom. You see, truth is worth more than doom. It, uh, it may be that the last thing we can hope for when the bomb goes off is that we perceive a truth rather than a falsehood at the last moment. Uh, Tolstoy used to believe that. He had a thesis that uh, all people should stop. Toward the end of his life, he got terribly cranky, and he believed that all people should stop copulating. This, this is in the Kreutzer Sonata, if you don't believe me. And uh, in answer to the query, well, what happens when the race starts dying out, he says, let the last man or the last woman think of God. That's what's most important. Uh, it seemed absurd at the time when I read it, but uh, it catches up with you as you get older. <laughs> I've never written too much about peace, and it occurred to me I'd better go back to uh, the only time I ever fought a war on the side of peace, which was the march on the Pentagon. Uh, it, it was, look, it, that event was curious beyond belief at the time, and it seemed stranger and stranger with every year. In fact, in another year or two, we'll be celebrating the uh, 20th anniversary of the march on the Pentagon. Who knows, it may, there may even be an anniversary march. Uh, but anyway, I thought I'd like to read to you a couple of uh, small sections from that book. The, for those of you who uh, things happen so quickly that, uh, well, let's say that 10, 15 years ago it was impossible to think of addressing a group like this and having to explain the march on the Pentagon, but I do see a few young faces here, and a few of you are as old as I am and uh, have memories probably about as good as our mutual friend Al Z. Heimer. So, uh, 
Let me just remind us that uh, that was the, an event that helped to end the war in Vietnam because Lyndon Johnson had a shock that day that he never recovered from, which is 50,000 people, 50,000 middle class people for the most part, and the children of middle class people, came, went down to Washington to protest the war in Vietnam and announced they were going to march on the Pentagon. And there was every possibility that they were going to get beaten up. And what it, Lyndon Johnson knew human character, and he prided himself on that. And what he knew is that middle class people don't look to get beaten up. And he said to himself, this is my novelist speculation, if I ever paid the way for people to come down here and listen to me speak, I couldn't get 50,000 people down here from New York. And these people who are middle class people who are scared shitless of getting beaten up are coming down here, 50,000 of them, to protest this war. There's something wrong. There's something wrong. There must be 50 million people who don't even know it who are behind them. And I think at that moment, something in his confidence about the war in Vietnam began to ooze out of him. Now, I must say, I didn't have that confidence that day. I thought it was one more perfectly dumb, stupid, egregious, hideous, horrible example of how the left can't think and can't do, and what was I doing in it? Here I was again <laughs> in, in something god-awful, and uh, I was going to miss a good party that night because I had to be down in Washington. And, uh, I, I had a simple and uh, egocentric orientation that day. But I must say, as it started, it got better. And it, it was surprisingly moving as we got into it. And I thought I'd read to you from the uh, beginning of the march. Before the march began uh, is one section. And then the second small section I'll read is the very beginning of the march and how we formed ranks, this peacetime army, to march on the Pentagon, which was about a mile and a half away from where we started. Uh, incidentally, I had the pleasure that day of uh, being with Robert Lowell. I wish he could be here reading today. And uh, we, uh, neither of us knew what we were doing there, so we tended to huddle together the way all soldiers do on the day of battle. If you don't know what you're doing, you find someone whose level of ignorance is equal to your own, <laughs> and, and you team up. <laughs> I, I also, for those of you who've never read this book, wrote about myself in the third person, so please bear with it. It's better when you read it than when you have to listen to someone call themselves by their last name. As Lowell and Mailer reached the ridge and took a turn to the right, to come down from Washington Monument toward the length of the long reflecting pool, which led between two long groves of trees near the banks to the steps of Lincoln Memorial. Out from that direction came the clear, bittersweet excitation of a military trumpet resounding in the near distance. One peal which seemed to go all the way back through a galaxy of bugles to the cries of the Civil War and the first trumpet note to blow the attack. The ghosts of old battles were wheeling like clouds over Washington today. The trumpet sounded again. It was calling the troops. Come here, it called from the steps of Lincoln Memorial, over the two furlongs of the long reflecting pool, out to the swell of the hill at the base of Washington Monument. Come here, come here, come here. The rally is on. And from the north and the east, from the direction of the White House and the Smithsonian and the Capitol, from Union Station and the Department of Justice. The troops were coming in. The volunteers were answering the call. They came walking up in all sizes, a citizen's army, not ranked yet by height. 
an army of both sexes in numbers almost equal, and of all ages, although most were young. Some were well-dressed, some were poor, many were conventional in appearance, as often, as often were not. The hippies were there in great number, perambulating down the hill, many dressed like the legions of Sergeant Pepper's band. Some were gotten up like Arab sheiks, or in Park Avenue doormen's greatcoats. Others like Rogers and Clark of the West, Wyatt Earp, Kit Carson, Daniel Boone and Buckskin. Some had grown mustaches to look like have gun, will travel. Paral Paladin's surrogate was here, and wild Indians with feathers. One hippie gotten up like Batman, another like Claude Rains and the Invisible Man, his face wrapped in a turban of bandages, and he wore a black satin top hat. A host of these troops wore capes, beat up khaki capes, slept on, used as blankets, towels, improvised duffel bags, or fine capes with orange linings or luminous rose linings, the edges ragged near a tatter, the threads ready to feather, but a musketeer's hat on their head. One hippie may have been dressed like Charlie Chaplin. Buster Keaton and W.C. Fields could have come for the ball. There were Martians and moonmen and a knight on horse who stalked about in the weight of real armor. There would be seen a hundred soldiers in Confederate gray, and maybe there were two or three hundred hippies in officers' coats of Union dark blue. They picked up their costumes where they could, in surplus stores and blow-your-mind shops, digger-free emporiums, and psychedelic catches of Hindu junk. There were soldiers in Foreign Legion uniforms and tropical bush jackets, San Quento and Chino, California striped shirt and pants, British copies of Eisenhower jackets, hippies dressed like Turkish shepherds and Roman senators, gurus and samurai in dirty smocks. They were close to being assembled from all the intersections between history and the comic books, between legend and television, the biblical archetypes and the movies. The sight of these troops, this army with a thousand costumes fulfilled to the hilt, Mailer's oldest idea of war, which is that every man should dress as he pleases if he is going into battle, for that is his right. And variety never hurts the zest of the hardiest workers in every battalion. Here today by thousands in plaid hunting jackets, corduroys or dungarees, ready for assault. If the sight of such masquerade lost its usual unhappy connotation of masked ladies and starving children outside the ball, it was not only because of the shabbiness of the costumes, up close half of them must have been used by hippies for everyday wear, but also because the aesthetic at last was in the politics. The dress ball was going into battle. Still there were nightmares beneath the gaiety of these middle class runaways, these crusaders, going out to attack the hard core of technology land with less training than armies were once offered by a medieval assembly ground. The nightmare was in the echo of those trips which had fractured their sense of past and present. If nature was a veil whose tissue had been ripped by static, screams of jet motors, the highway grid of the suburbs, smog, defoliation, pollution of streams, over-fertilization of earth, anti-fertilization of women, and the radiation of two decades of near-blind atom-busting. And perhaps the history of the past was another tissue, spiritual, no doubt, without physical embodiment, unless its embodiment was the cuneiform hieroglyphics of the chromosome, so much like primitive writing. But that tissue of past history, whether traceable in the flesh, or merely palpable in the collective underworld of the dream, 
was nonetheless being bombed by the use of LSD as outrageously as the atoll of Enowetok, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the scorched foliage of Vietnam. The history of the past was being exploded right into the present. Perhaps there were now lacunae in the firmament of the past, holes where once had been the psychic reality of an era which was gone. Mailer was haunted by the nightmare that the evils of the present not only exploited the present, but consumed the past and gave every promise of demolishing whole territories of the future. The same villains who promiscuously, wantonly, heedlessly had gorged on LSD and consumed God knows what essential marrows of history, wearing indeed the history of all eras on their back as trophies of this gluttony, were now going forth where they conscience struck to make war on those other villains, corporation land villains, who were destroying the promise of the present in their self-righteousness and greed and secret lusts often unknown to themselves for some sexo-technological variety of neo-fascism. Mailer's final allegiance, however, was with the villains who were hippies. They would never have looked to blow their minds and destroy some part of the past if the authority had not brainwashed the mood of the present until it smelled like deodorant to cover the odor of burning flesh in Vietnam. So he continued to enjoy the play of costumes, but his pleasure was now edged with a hint of the sinister, not inappropriate for battle. He and Lowell were still in the best of moods. The morning was so splendid. It spoke of a vitality in nature, which no number of bombings in space nor inner space might ever subdue. The rustle of costumes warming up for the war spoke of future redemptions as quickly as they reminded of hog swillings from the past. In the thin air, wine of Civil War apples in the October air, edge of excitement and awe, how at this day end, no one could know. Incredible spectacle now gathering, tens of thousands traveling hundreds of miles to attend a symbolic battle. In the capital of technology land, beat a primitive drum, new drum of the left. All right, now the, uh, I'd like to, Now, about two hours later, after a great many speeches, uh, we began a march. And the problem was that there were about 50,000 of us, and we had to form up in ranks, about 50 or 60 across, we marched across a bridge that was, oh, perhaps a half mile in length. And getting that march started became more and more difficult, and more and more semi-comic and slightly scary, because, of course, there was always the fright of a stampede, or, or none of us knew how to do it. At any rate, let me read from that moment. Up at the front of this march, in the first line, back of that hollow square of monitors who were to lead it, the two authors walked in this barrage of cameras, helicopters, TV cars, monitors, loudspeakers, and wavering, buckling, twisting line of notables, arms linked. Line twisting so much that at times the movement was in file, one arm locked ahead, one behind. Then the line would undulate about, and the other arm would be ahead, speeding up a few steps, slowing down, while a great happiness came back into the day, as if finally one stood under some mythical arch in the great vault of history, helicopters buzzing about, chop, chop, and a sense of America divided on this day, 
now liberated some undiscovered patriotism in, in Mailer. So he felt a sharp, searing love for his country in this moment. And on this day, crossing some divide in his own mind wider than the Potomac, a love so lacerated he felt as if a marriage were being torn and children lost. Never does one love so much as then. Obviously, then. And an odor of wood smoke from where you knew not was also in the air. A smoke of dignity and some calm heroism. Not unlike the sense of freedom which also comes when a marriage is burst. Mailer knew for the first time why men in the front line of a battle are almost always ready to die. There's a promise of some swift transit when soul feels clean. As we have gathered, he was not much he was not used much more than any other American politician, literateur, or racketeer to the sentiment that his soul was clean. But here, walking with Lowell and Dwight MacDonald, he felt as if he stepped through some crossing in the reaches of space between this moment, the French Revolution, and the Civil War, as if the ghost of the Union dead accompanied them now to the Bastille. He was not drunk at all, merely illumined by hunger, the sense of danger to the front, the sense of danger to the rear. He was, in fact, in love with himself for having less fear than he had thought he might have. He knew suddenly then he had less fear now than when he was a young man. In some part of himself, at least, he had grown, if less innocent, less timid. The cold flame of a perfectly contained exaltation warmed old asthmas of gravel in, a, in the heart. And the sense that they were going to face the symbol, the embodiment. No, call it the true and high church of the military-industrial complex, the Pentagon, blind, five-sided eye of a subtle oppression which had come to America out of the very air of the century, this evil 20th century with its curse on the species, its oppressive Faustian lusts, its technological excrement all over the continents and nature, its entrapment of the innocent to the best, for which young American soldiers hot out of high school and in love with a hot rod and his marine buddies and his platoon in Vietnam to begin to know the devil of the oppression, which is steal his soul before he knew he had one. Yes, the author felt a confirmation of the contest of his own life. On this march to the eye of the oppressor, greedy, stingy, dumb valve of the worst of the wasp heart, chalice and anus of corporation land, smug and closed, morally blind Pentagon, destroying the future of its own nation, with each day it augmented in strength. And the novelist induced on the consequence some dim, unawakened knowledge of the mysteries of America, buried in these liberties to dissent. What a mysterious country it was. The older it became, the more interesting he found it. Okay. All right. Anyway, I... I speak of war on the day of peace because, um, who knows, we hope it won't come to that, but there, there may be battles yet. At any rate, it, um, salutations and good to see you all. Good night. I want to, uh, want to take this last moment for us to reflect on what a, an extraordinary day this has been. Jerome Charon, Amy Clampett, Richard Gilman, Maurice Kenny, Diana Chang, Allen Ginsberg, Grace Paley, Oscar Huelos, Frankie Fitzgerald, Derek Parsons, Arthur Copet, and Norman Mailer, adding their voices to the rest of the world. 
on this first International Writers for Peace Day. There will, unless peace uh, comes to us in the interim, be annual occasions uh, of this sort. And we hope that because you have done so much to make this one a success, you will join us in the future. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.